This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Not Aloe, but Oro, located in sunny Southern California. Created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a treatment center that helps alcoholics and addicts by using compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades of experience, many decades of experience, in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that your kick, your detox, is as comfortable as possible, which is great. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. The surfing, the sound bath meditation, the equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much more. But you don't go to treatment for the amenities. You go because Oro is going to treat you like a person. I have friends that have been there. They've all said they're treated amazing. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly suggest going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. At Soberlink, somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. You do it for that someone who cares to help you to stay off of the sauce. Check them out at soberlink.com slash Dopey. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our old friends at Brainwashed Coffee. And their coffee is delicious. And they're from Port Chester, New York. And that's where I went to college. So I love brainwashed coffee. They also give 50% of all of their profits to people and movements around recovery, which is amazing. But they have a new mug. It's a beautiful pink and black mug made by Mir. Perfect for hot and cold coffee. The lining will not affect the flavor of your favorite brainwashed brew. It's leak-free, insulated, BPA-free, and again, it's pink with the black logo. The Dopey 20 code is still active for 20% off coffee orders, and we added a special code for your listeners. Recovery Mug. Valid all recovery month for 5 bucks off the mug. Codes can be combined for huge savings. That's brainwashedcoffeeco.com. I want to tell you guys about a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on all podcast outlets and at middleagesrecovery.com. That's right. It is middleagesrecovery.com. Check it out. I was on one. It was great.
welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I want to welcome you guys to another episode of Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. How are you doing? I know you didn't ask, but I'm doing well. Thank you. It is Friday. It is Friday, and the show's coming out today. It's Friday, October 1st, and I don't know if you guys know what that means. I know what that means. It means... Tonight, in America, they are airing the Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. And dopey Twitter has been abuzz with excitement and speculation and all sorts of stuff. And and some listeners abroad have seen it because they released it early in England. And they say it's amazing. And, you know, I'm hearing a lot of chatter about this movie. And I'm excited to watch it. I am. But I'm not crazy for it. And I'll tell you guys why. I'm sure you're wondering, Dave, you love The Sopranos. You're a Sopranos freak. Why aren't you going crazy? And I'll tell you. It's because I'm scared. And I don't want to be disappointed. So when I'm scared and I don't want to be disappointed, I like to uh, minimize my expectations so that I am not disappointed. Tonight, I will get ice cream and I will sit with Linda. Linda will probably bail. And then we'll get into a fight and I'm going to scream at her that I'm watching it anyway. I have to watch it tonight and maybe she'll watch it with me. I don't know. We're going to watch it tonight. So stand by for next week where we will tell you. I'm sure you're dying to know what I think. I'm sure I'll tweet about it tonight. So go on Dopey Twitter and see what I thought of the many saints of Newark if you care. And I hope you guys like it. And I just realized something also. We're like running out of dopey emails and dopey voicemails. We need the dopey, you know? I mean, I've run out of drug stories. I'm fucking sober six years. Hit us with the dopey. We need it. Write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in a voicemail to the same place. Keep it around five minutes. Make it dopey as hell. Make it funny. Make it, uh, make it good. For the, for the sake of the show, give us, give us your, your greatest dopey hits. There's so many of you guys out there. I am so confident that we can get a, a renaissance of dopey stories. So please uh, do that for us. That would be great. If not for me, do it for Chris because he, he lived for hitting him with the dopey. Also, um, the dopey Patreon is the thing that's keeping this ship afloat. So if you're not supporting Dopey Patreon, it would be great if you did. If you are supporting it, thank you. We put out a crazy video with my dad this week. I released uh, the Dopey $10 bonus episode with uh, Big Steve Parrish, who is the Jerry Garcia Band tour manager. Very interesting stuff. This morning, just because I was feeling generous and crazy, I put out the Tiffany Jenkins interview the video i didn't realize i had a video so i put that on patreon there's a ton of shit on patreon please support us and, and go to www.patreon slash dopey podcast and of course we have tons of gear we're just about done with the dopey bertha dead thing that's going to be done sunday the t-shirt we're going to sell the hoodies for a few more weeks i think and we have a new dopey frankenstein halloween shit which is also limited edition. Support the show, buy merch, go to Patreon. That's my whole spiel. I appreciate you guys helping out. So I'm sure you guys have heard about this horrible story about this young woman, Gabby Petito, who died, who they found her body out west, and she was 
some kind of social media influencer. Her thing was van life, and she was traveling the country with her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, and now Brian is uh, wanted by the F- FBI. He's like the main suspect in this case. I don't know if you guys know this, but Gabby was from right where we live right now. She's from like the next town over, I think, in Bayport. And Linda has been following this story really closely. And and the people where we live are incredibly invested in this story. We did a, a vigil for her. Everybody lit candles. It was very moving and sad. And she was young. And it's just a horrible story. And, and a lot of the media is saying that the evidence said that she was abused uh, by her boyfriend in a domestic violent situation and possibly killed by him. And this episode very much delves into domestic violence and, uh, and death. So I just wanted to make it clear that if you are in any kind of bad situation, that there are people that can help you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE, which is SAFE, or 7233. Just tell people what's going on, because I have two daughters, and I would hate for them to be in any kind of situation like this. We have a ton of young women listeners and a ton of women listeners, and if anybody's having a hard time, reach out to that hotline. Their website is thehotline.org, thehotline.org. If you need help, check them out online or call them again at 1-800-799-7233, which is SAFE, 1-800-799-SAFE. So being in a, a situation in domestic violence is is probably one of the worst situations you could ever be in. Please ask for help. Extract yourself from that situation because it is so toxic and dangerous. And I bring all this up because we recorded the interview with our next guest a few weeks ago before they found Gabby's body and before this whole story came out. But I thought it was very, very important to talk about that stuff with you guys before we play the next interview. His name is Sam McBride, and he got into a horrible situation of domestic violence, and he paid the price for it, and he lives with the remorse and the horrors of it, and now he lives in redemption and is a hopeful guy, and I was very happy to have him at my dad's house a few weeks ago, and here he is. His name is Sam McBride. People call him Sammy Town. He's from the northern California punk rock band called Fang. Here he is, Sammy Town. So I'm at my father's house with a guest, and my guest is Sam McBride, aka Sammy Town of the punk rock group Fang. Notable for lots of stuff. Some stuff is is you know scarier than other stuff, but crazy drug stuff as well. We'll get to everything. Welcome to my father's house. Welcome to Dopey. <laughs> Thanks for actually letting me into your father's house. I mean, that's unusual. People don't let me into their houses a lot of times, so I really feel honored. You know? Well, yeah, I feel I feel safe with you. Yeah, yeah, it's good. We don't have our clothes on, so that makes it even better. Makes you know, it very intimate. Said, yeah, leave leave your clothes at the door. Uh, I didn't know that was part of Dopey, but you know, apparently it's a thing. I never told anybody, because I've been doing a lot of episodes of Dopey, and the Dopey Nation feels very comfortable with my dad, but I never mentioned that my dad's actually an Orthodox nudist as well, <laughs> and he and he's always naked. They I, they always assume he's clothed. It's just, yeah, it's always just in the house. 
drop your laundry at the door. You we know? had uh, we had Lenny Dykstra from the New York Mets here, right? And Lenny like is a scary fuck, and he's not sober. Yeah. And my dad, my dad was like, "Let me hang out before Lenny gets here," because my dad's a baseball fan. But he was kind of a little bit nervous because I actually I also had to pay Lenny. I didn't talk about this on the show. Okay. And he also said a lot of crazy shit before he came up, but I had to pay him. And my dad was like, let me hang out. So did you like, was it like cash in an envelope? You know, like he was waiting at the door kind of a thing. You know? It was similar. It was a story <laughs> like that. And he was a mess. Like he was fucking in bad shape. Oh. He comes up, he meets my dad. And after my dad left, Lenny Dexter was like, wow, your dad is so good looking. I would love to pimp him out to my old lady. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He wanted to have, he was like going full on swinger action. He's like. He wished it had been a nudist apartment when he got here. He was, he like looked visibly in, and my dad's like 77 years old. So we'll just, okay, that's enough of nudist dopey. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And and you are finished. You just finished a American tour with Fang. We did. We did a two week East Coast tour. You know, uh, it's hard to tour right now. I think we, in some ways, jumped the gun. It was a little early when we booked it uh, because you know we started in Florida. Delta is running rampant. You know, and it definitely affected the shows to a degree. But the last, especially the last four shows, we did Philly. Uh, which was great. We did, uh, and we did the we played the Bowery Electric last night. And that, How was it? That was awesome. A lot of New York City punk show up. Yeah, and uh, the thing that they're working on um, is matinees. They're all ages, you know. And so that's I'm definitely all about playing for you know youngsters. You know, it's like I don't really care about playing for a bunch of grumpy old uh, fucks like myself. You know, because it's it's definitely all about the kids. Like I was arguing with Johnny Stiff, if you guys were, if you know who Johnny Stiff, if you were in a punk rock scene or the metal scene in New York, then you know who Johnny Stiff is. And he's bitching about the kids. I'm like, dude, all I know is I'm 56 years old. I don't know anything. If I, if I want to know something, I have to ask the kids. Cause like when I was 15, 16, I knew some shit, right? you know, but now I don't know anything, you know, and everybody, it's like, they're bitching about the kids. I'm like, dude, when we were kids, we hated people like us. It's, but when you were kids, there were no people like you. Well, there, we were talking about this before. There were the hippies. There but were, when you were kids, like there were the hippies. But like they were the older people. That's why. That's why we were talking about you know punk rockers and and, and the hippies because we were trying to get away from that. You know, we thought we we knew it, but we did. We knew more. You know, as a kid, you know what's really happening. You know what's really right and wrong. At least I think that we were far closer to it then. The kids are way more united than we are as adults. You know, they, they, they know more. So I, I try and listen to the kids. Let me ask you this. When you were a kid and when you got into the punk rock scene, you were basically a drug addict straight away in the punk rock scene, right? Yeah, I jumped, I just jumped right in that. That's one thing that like, I mean, I started getting high, uh, through the boy scouts, you know, that, that, I mean, I, I started smoking weed, but really I was in a boy scout troop in Oakland, troop seven. And our scoutmaster was a pot dealer, and we had we had a we were a rough Boy Scout troop. Uh, Huey Newton's nephew was in our Boy Scout troop. Wow! I mean, we were like the shit, you know. And our scoutmaster was a pot dealer, and we were we were slinging bags for our scoutmaster to fund our camping. You'd trips. get like the the, the weed slinging badge. Yeah, yes, the, exactly. I got my dope dealing merit badge from the Boy Scouts of America. You know what I want to know though is when you got into the punk rock scene in, in Northern Cali, there were drugs everywhere. When everywhere. you're touring. Now and you play an all access an all ages show. Do you see drugs around? Do you see that around the kids, on the kids, in their faces? I mean, you know, you see him. You see him getting drinking, 
but I don't know if there's the the you know uh, speed was huge in in the Bay Area punk rock scene. That was like the drug of choice at that time. There was speed everywhere. I I don't. It's hard to tell. You know, I see more of the kids drinking than. Uh, but you know, who knows? Right. You know, it's like I don't I don't sit there and hang out with them to know what you know what's really going on as far as like you know their their taste in drugs or if they're getting high or if they're not getting high i remember your your first speed story was insanity like <laughs> what was the story again so what so i was maybe 14 i was 13 or 14 me and this chick we went to san francisco so we used to spare change you know and that was that was like a great hustle and so we went out and we spare changed in san francisco we made a bunch of money and she was older you know and like i said i was maybe 13 uh, maybe i turned 14 but uh, we'd made like 30 bucks. We came back to the East Bay and I'm like, okay, what are we doing? You know, cause she was probably like 16. He's like, oh, we're going to get some speed, you know? So we went to this notorious place, Barrington Hall. They had punk rock shows there and it was a, it was a dorm for Cal, but it was like a, it was a drug dorm. Like there was every drug you could want is just like, oh, that's down, you know, five doors, you know, whatever you wanted. And so we went to this one guy's dorm room and she knocked on the door. There's a bunch of people shooting speed in there. You know, and so I'm, uh, you know, we gave him, you know, 20 bucks, 10 bucks each, you know, and he, he lined it up. And this was also, this is like 79, you know, AIDS hadn't come out yet. Nobody knew about hep C. Rigs were hard to get. So literally he had like one rig, you know, and there's like 10 people in a row and he's just going and shooting everybody up, same rig over and over again, you know, and I just watched what everybody else did, you know. But I, I will say, in his defense, when he got to me, he kind of looked at me and goes, have you ever done this before? Because you must have looked very youthful. I, was, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, in retrospect, who knows? I mean, I was not, I didn't look like, you know, like I was not shaving yet, you know? And I just watched what everybody else did. I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. And I just stuck out my arm like everybody else had done, you know, and wrapped a bandana around it, you know, and made it look like I knew what I was doing, you know, and I was off to the races. Do you remember being a Boy Scout and your scout leader like being like, help me sell weed? And, and when you started to smoke it, was there ever a question in your head like, this, this isn't what I should be doing? Or like, when did, was there a conscience? Because like when you're fucking getting a, a, a shot of speed in your arm, like that's pretty heavy duty, drastic. Like, obviously you had drank a bunch, you had smoked a lot of bud. Like, so you were like, I'm, I'm bad. And I'm with this, this 16 year old girl and I'm on my way. Right. Like, like, was there ever a, a section in your youth where you were like, holy shit, this might be too much. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, really, as soon as I started getting high and, and, and selling drugs, it, I was all in. I'm like this, you know, like ride this shit out till I die. Like I never thought I would make, make it to be 18 years old. When I was a freshman in high school, uh, I'd gotten in trouble and I dipped out for like three weeks in this huge, uh, all throughout my high school, there was a rumor that I had died, you know, and, and you know, of, of questionable circumstances. Nobody questioned the rumor. Everybody already just assumed. Because you were insanity personified. Yes, because, you know, I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I had fucking purple hair. I had my ear pierced. I was constantly getting jumped and in fights, you know, and, uh, and I was dealing drugs. The cops kept coming to the high school, you know, so there was, it wasn't even as a freshman in high school, 
nobody questioned the rumor that I had died. Everyone's just like, well, of course. Yeah, he's Sammy's dad. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, yeah, we were waiting on that. No big deal, you know. So after you had taken the first shot, were you like, I need to keep shooting speed? Like, like how did it develop? I mean, it, it, it definitely was like, because uh, I was already all in on getting loaded every day. You know, at that time. With weed and alcohol. Weed and alcohol, you know. And then as soon as I shot speed, I'm like, okay, now now I've got something else to add to my repertoire. And uh, and so, you know, that was, that was the end goal of every day to get loaded. You know, uh, speed if I could, uh, booze and, and weed, no matter what, you know. And uh, really, I, I, I shot speed... For a couple years, uh, until I, I had an, yet another older girlfriend, who who uh, she was into shooting coke, and she had she had the money, <laughs> so she was at first for a while buying me speed, but finally she's like, I'm not wasting my I'm not buying you speed anymore. You're just gonna have to shoot coke with me. And I'm like, okay, fine, <laughs> if I have to, you know. And how how much older was she than you? Uh, so she was probably four. She was probably four years older than me because she when the first time i came to new york on my own uh she was going to nyu and i was 14 or maybe 15 and she was 18 or 19 you always had older women right uh yeah for i mean it was it's weird because now you look back and it's like you know like these women some of them would like go to jail you know when i was 15 my parents had finally thrown me out of the house i was on felony probation, I was, you know, a, a, a regular day drug addict, you know, I was doing coke and speed uh, dealing, and they did not know how to deal with me, so my mom finally was like, you need to get the fuck out of here, and um, so I, I left, uh, she threw me out, and I, I moved in with this girl, I was living on the streets for a short period of time, and I moved in with this woman, and she was 30, and and I was 15, but my, and, and you know, like, I, I go to my probation uh you know, my probation officer, cause I got to check in every week. And, you know, I, I, he was like, how's it going? I'm like, well, I'm not on the streets anymore. I, I met a girl and he's like, Oh, you know, that's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, she's 30 years old. She buys me a pack of smokes every morning, you know? And he's like, man, I'm so glad you're not on the streets anymore. Right. And that was it. You know, that was like, you know, that was totally acceptable. Do you think like, like, what is that about? Like with, when you have, when you're 15 years old and you have a 30 year old girlfriend, like part of me is like, right on good for you. Like that's fucking like I, if I was 15 and there was a 30 year old woman who wanted to take care of me, I would be psyched. But if it was my kid and she was 15 and there was some 30 year old man, I'd be like, fuck no way. You know yeah, what I mean? No, no. I mean, I, I how does that work in your mind? It, 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 uh, Obviously, for both of us, there was probably a lot of trauma. It was it was not a healthy relationship. Uh, you know, certainly uh, neither of my kids, it, when they were 15, if they started dating a 30-year-old, uh, there would have been a big issue. Big problem. <laughs> big problem. You know, um, and so it's, I think times have changed. Um, ideals have changed. You know, things have changed, you know, uh, and, and I think we're, Things are looked at differently. We're, we're, and also I th for the better. Definitely. You know, that I think we realize it's like, okay, that's, that's not okay. You know, for a, you know, an adult to be in, in that kind of a position with a, with a 15 year old kid, you know, cause when I look at my, you know, when my kids were 15, they were like kids, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, so I think back, it's like, uh, you know, like shooting drugs. Cause she was, you know, we were shooting, shooting Coke together, you know, shooting dope, uh, 
you know, <laughs> doing all kinds of fucked up shit. And it's like, you know, that's not a, that's not a place for a 15 year old kid to be. Do you, did you stay in touch with her? She's still alive. Uh, and so I, I haven't seen her now, uh, you know, since I left the Bay area, but every once in a while, you know, she would, she'll show up at a fang show and, uh, nice. and she's still, still going and still going. She was definitely into speed. So you got to figure she's now like a 70 year old speed freak. That's never really gotten sober, gotten sober. No, no. And, and somehow is still alive somehow right. in met, speed years. That's like 150 or right? like 3000. Right. She's got no teeth. I mean, come, you know, right. but, but she's sort of maintained. Uh, she's still alive, which is mind blowing <laughs> in and of itself. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me. No, it, just, it just is. Now, when did, when did uh, music come in? So, I mean, it, it all gelled together, you know, uh, early on, 13, 14, you know, I got turned on to the Sex Pistols, you know, so it was like, at first it was, you know, like drugs, and then it was like drugs and, and punk rock, and so, I mean, I, I got uh, I got turned on to the Sex Pistols in, in the UK, uh, my dad teaches, at, or did, he's retired, but taught at UC Berkeley, and so he took sabbatical, so we moved to the UK in 78, I think, and... Uh, and and I got turned on to the Sex Pistols there, and so when I came back, it, it was it was on. Um, I started my first band. We had this like garage punk rock band, Reign of Terror, you know. And it was like me and a, and, a, and we were a bunch of snotty kids, you know. And then uh, were you all punked out in the as soon as you did it? Oh yeah, like I, I you know, purple hair, got my ear pierced. And back then, it's hard to imagine now, but if you were in 1979, if you were a, a kid. With an ear pierced, you know, like if I, you had your ear pierced in 1979, you were going to get fucked with. You know, it was, uh, you know, like that, that you were asking to be a, a target. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. You know, and so purple hair, earring, I, you know, freshman in high school, like it was like it was on, you know, as far as that I got fucked with constantly had, you know, got jumped, got into fights, every, you know, got called every name in the book. You know, um, but, you know, that was the punk rock scene in the in the Bay Area was was just uh, off the hook. You know, great bands, uh, lots of shows. And it was also uh, super inclusive. Like you could be a young kid, you know, and I mean, which is good and bad. But, you know, I'm like 14 years old and I'm hanging out with, you know, some other young kids, too, but also with a lot of adults. You know, and, and like Fang, uh, when I was 15, my best friend was this guy, Joel Fox, and he was a drummer. He played in a couple other bands. And, uh, you know, we'd shoot speed and, and do crime and, you know, get fucked up and, and listen to punk rock. And Fang uh, needed a new drummer because Fang started, it was a two-piece, like, noise band out of Connecticut at first. And then the guitar player moved to California and started it back up. And so... He needed a drummer, and so Joel, uh, he hit up Joel and asked Joel to start drumming for him. So Joel went to try out, and I went with him because I was his sidekick, you know. And so uh, when they tried Joel out, they said, yeah, they wanted him to play in the band. And I went up to the guitar player, and I'm like, hey, you guys need a lead singer. And uh, Did you know that you were going to be good? Like when you said that, you were like, I'd, I'm going to do this. I'm, I had sang in this band called Shut Up for like, a couple shows. So, you know, I, I was cocky, you know, I was 15 cocky as fuck, you know, dealing drugs, using drugs, dealing drugs, using drugs. Uh, um, and, 
and you know was very cocky and i'm like dude i, I you need a lead singer he's like do you know anybody i'm like yeah me <laughs> you know so he's like we'll come back next you know the next practice with joel and we'll we'll give it a try and then so i came back and and started singing and that was that was history and uh so the at the, around that time too from the my older my 30 year old girlfriend yes uh I'd started dealing quaaludes and they'd stopped making quaaludes. And so, uh, Denise, who was my older girlfriend, she had this, this older guy that she knew and he cleaned out his storage and he found this jar of a thousand lemon seven fourteens. I feel like I got to do them. Like, I don't know how it happened. I have this weird memory that I got to do them for a little bit. Uh, well, you're 47 there. There was like, uh, we used to get them from Mexico because after they stopped making them in America, there was, uh, they, there was some, that were still made in Mexico. And I think even there was, um, there was like home press quaaludes that were, I think I got to, I got to, I think I really liked them. I don't really remember as well as I'd like, but I think I really enjoyed quaaludes in my, in my early twenties. Loved quaaludes. I mean, anybody who's seen fast times at Ridgemont high remembers that scene. Don't drive on quaaludes. (laughs) Cause that's real. Cause you don't want to fucking drive on quaaludes. I mean, they, it was, it was like, you would take one quaalude and it would be like, all the really good effects of being super drunk without like throwing up without or, nausea. Yeah. Without nausea. And it was quick, you know, like 20 minutes later, you're fucking, you know, singing every song that you, you know, like all it's like, it was just like quaaludes were a blast. That's why they had to get rid of them. My memory is like, it's like this weird sort of Venn diagram between benzos and opiates that you feel that sort but where you're not passing out. Yeah, no, that's, that's not bad. And, and I think it's a little more goofy. You know, like it's got the, you know, that's, it's not quite the, so they didn't have a real medicinal purpose. Like the way benzos deal with anxiety and opiates deal with pain. You know, what did quaaludes do? Like seriousness, this, uh, overwhelming a, seriousness. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Who, like, what did they make quaaludes originally for? <laughs> I have I no idea. That's fucking, why they don't make them anymore. Yeah, right. Because there was no reason other than for the fucking party, you know, but they. Uh, and what were the damaging effects of quaaludes? Uh, do not fucking drive. <laughs> but it's like, here's a question. It's a stupid question. It's okay. like, if people, and it's not a personal question, it's more of a vague question. Yeah. It's like people imbibe on alcohol legally in order to feel good right Right. now there's recreational marijuana in order to feel good like why wouldn't quaaludes or nitrous be something that's recreational i mean not for you or me but i mean in general i I don't know like pleasure factory kind of thing. nitrous i think you know maybe there's an argument there quaaludes were it's is it addictive well probably i don't know i mean i would assume but also it's like it's like you take one and you're fucking hammered. Right. You know, it's not like, you know, there's like, you know, no, you know, it's like anybody who really likes to just get fucked up, you know, then you take a quaalude because it's not like you, I, I mean, I guess you could take half. I don't know who does that shit, but you know, you could take half a quaalude and be not as hammered, but you know, you take a quaalude and you're like stumbling and like trying to fight that guy because he, you know, looks certain. I mean, it was just. Quaaludes are like being really drunk really fast. Impairment. Very quick impairment. Yeah, quick impairment. But a, a lot of fun. You know, like if you if you like getting fucked up, I mean, and that's why they, they got rid of them. I don't know what like what they made them Do for. Do you think there's things. like troves of them buried in some vault? Like rich people have like vaults of them? or Like do you think there are places only, where... Only in the dark recesses of my mind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in know? my imagination, there's vaults there's of this. vault of, yeah. of quaaludes like somewhere like with the... Yeah, uh, with like the an alien, old... Like an old gold mine or something, and there's records, and there's quaaludes, and, and, and alien spacecrafts, and uh, 
supposedly acid and all that kind of stuff. Don't you think it, it, there's not there? You don't think I, that exists anywhere? I, I, Just in my imagination? Well, I don't know. So maybe somewhere between our imagination and uh, what Area 51. Exactly. We'll have, to go, we'll have to go searching. Yeah. And you did you, you dealt the quaaludes? So I dealt the quaaludes. So the, Sorry the, for that. No, no. That we, yeah, we, we got tangent out of there. But I, I, so I started dealing quaaludes because, and nobody could get them. And, you know, and so, I mean, it was, it was great for me because then, you know, it's like, so who's this 15 year old kid with real quaaludes, you know? And so I, I, uh, people started taking notice of me, older people that were in the, in the, you know, like more serious drug trafficking circles. Cause they had, they were like buying quaaludes from this 15 year old kid, you know, and they were real quaaludes. And so through that, uh, I made connections with, uh, some guys in the, um, Northern California acid family. And, and then I later, you know, not soon after, I mean, things moved fast back then, but they, they brought me in. I mean, it's, it, it was set up that way, you know, like it, I'm sure things in, in New York, you're like somebody's boy, you know, it's like, Oh, that's my boy. I vouch for them. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and he's going to work, you know, he works for me, you know, and, and you work your way up the, the ladder, so to speak, you know? So I was brought in at 15. I was, I was given a gun, you know, uh, I was told, okay, uh, you need to go uh, sit at this door, make sure nobody tries to come in and rob stuff because we're, you know, we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in here. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was brought in as, as this guy, Terry's boy into the Northern California asset family. You, we talked about before we started recording the sort of like, I don't know, a- adversarial relationship between punks and hippies in general, yes. right? Now, the Acid family had to have been total fucking hippies. It was all, yeah, I mean... But they, hippies love punks, right? I mean, they, uh, they That's all, the thing. They, they did. They, they appreciated me. They did. I mean, to a degree, I think... Some of them were like, oh, my God, that kid's fucking nuts, you know. But, but they liked that because you're a character then. Yeah, and, and, uh, and also I was a good worker, you know, like uh, because back then, you know, we were especially like we were sitting here in New York. You know, I started running acid to New York when I was 16 years old. In what know? capacity? Well, we, started, we were doing uh, gels for a long time. We, you know, we, that was like the big thing, you know, window pane or gels, you know. Uh, that was – and so we would – You were making them. Yeah, we, well – they had a chemist that makes the crystal, you know, and a gram of crystal makes 10,000 hits of acid, you know. So, you, you know, we'd get the grams of crystal through the family and then we'd make, you know. Walk us through it. Okay, so you take a gram of crystal and I was like giving up all the old secrets. But really, like window pane knocks gelatin and food coloring. It's not that fucking. What does that you explain it to me? I'm stupid. So well, if you if you ever look at window paint, it's like a, a, I don't know if you ever eaten window paint or gel acid. I don't know. What does it look like? It it looks like it looks like a little tiny plastic square, but it melts in your mouth. No, I never took it. Okay, I so only took uh, like paper blotter. Yeah, yeah that's know? all I ever so, got. Window pane was huge, but how you make it, you you know, I mean, you have to you have to have all the the measurements down. So it like melts in your mouth. Yeah, it's, it's 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 literally not. I missed gelatin, out. I really you know? missed out on everything and, and food because so there'd be like green and pink and orange and blue, you know. Uh, but we would take uh, you take the light fixture you know, in a light fixture, the old neon light fixtures. If you take the plastic uh, uh, shield that you know shields the light, if you look at it, it's thousands of tiny little squares that are like a pyramid. And so we'd buy those and we'd cut out and count out a thousand squares and you'd make a mold you know and then you you know we had we had all the measurements down so you know it's like okay the grams ten thousand hits we'd usually put up ten thousand at a time sometimes 20 or 30 but usually 
you know, 10 to 30,000 at a time we'd make. You heat up the Knox gelatin, you know, uh, on, on the stove, food coloring. We're going to do orange this week and add in the crystal, stir it up, and then we'd have it marked out. So you pour it in these molds, you know, made from light fixtures from neon lights, and then put it in a dehydrator, you know, and then wait till it was like rubbery and you could peel it out and, and then wow. window paint acid. And so the other thing, this is before 9-11, nobody searched you when you got on a plane, you know, so they'd send me on the plane. Okay, here, take, you know, 100,000 hits to New York, you know, and, and meet up with this guy and give him, you know, to this. So how soon after you get hired by the, the acid family are you making acid? And how soon after are you running trips with 10,000 doses in your back? Quick. I mean, it, you know, I, it, it was, it all moved fairly quickly. You know, like Fang started, you know, acid started. This all started right when I was 15 and 16. And, and it just, it, it. It was it was fast. When's the first time you took acid in the first place? You know, I have no fucking idea. Right. You know, uh, I can't. You know, it, I probably when I was you know fourteen. You know, it was everywhere. I mean, we're talking about Berkeley and Oakland, and you know the seventies. Acid was everywhere. You know, super I, cheap, super su- available. Yeah. I mean, it, and uh, the the crowds that I ran in, there was you know a a there was a crossover in the the punk rock and the the older hippies, you know, from the drug scene. And there was an after hours club in Berkeley that was run by a bunch of hippies. And they see, I think the hippies love the punks because the punks were super free. The punks did whatever the fuck they wanted. So the hippies really liked that. And the punks hated the hippies because they thought they were lame. Right. So it was like a one way relationship (laughs) to a degree. I think you're right. I think that that's true. I think a lot of the punks, were were rebelling against the hippies that some of them their their parents were hippies right you know and so there was there was definitely i think that that's i'm very interested in the relationship between between hippies and punks i'm really interested i think that's an interesting relationship in general now when you're making and transporting thousands of hits like i think the most hits i ever did at once was six like what's the most and, and and i lost my mind on six you know what's the most most the biggest dose you ever took you think I have no idea. I know that uh, I, one time we went out to the desert for the weekend, and I and I started with a hundred hits of acid. And uh, I know I gave some away, but I think I had eighteen when when we were done. And I think I gave maybe twenty away. You know, so I ate because I kept I was drinking alcohol de caña. It's like a, a Mexican uh, like moonshine. It's super potent. Right, so right. Drinking, and I kept eating more acid so I wouldn't pass out. But also. Even so, when I got trained how to, you know, like put up acid, you know, to, to blotter or whatever, they would all wear masks and suits, and you would you would always get fucking high. It didn't matter. I mean, that shit is crystal, like a gram of crystals, ten thousand hits. It's so fucking potent that just being around it, you're you're gonna get high. So it, no matter what, every time you did it, you're you know you have to commit to. It's like okay, I'm gonna try and get through this and get this done and then i'm just gonna be high for another you know like day yeah day or you know eight hours ten hours whatever because it's not like bagging up heroin where no. like the dust might make you feel good this this, this shit is acid. yeah it's gonna take you out in, yeah. in this weird way so uh so after doing it a number of times i'm like dude i don't know why you guys even bother because you, you just why don't you just go with you know so i stopped you know, I didn't wear gloves, you know, I, I didn't mask up because I knew I was just going to get high anyway. It's like, let's just get it done and then be high, 
You know, so as far as like how much acid at one time, I it doesn't I, mean it doesn't I even know. matter. It doesn't even, even matter because probably when you worked, you were higher anyway because you're dealing with so much of the molecule. It, it, it was it was I was on acid on it fairly regularly for you know for an extended period of time. And when you travel with ten thousand doses, you would just move them to somebody and take the money and fly home. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd run it. They say, okay, meet this guy here, and also too, like uh, on the East Coast, you know, we had regular people, so I, you know, come out and you know, you get to know him. He's like, okay, meet up with this guy, you know, or or stay with this person, you know, and that was just the way the way it was. And then what happened though, New uh, New York, we had a guy out here and uh, gel acid or window pane. He he was a junkie, this guy, and uh, and he. Pissed off the family, fucking around, and so he flooded the East Coast with bogus gels, bogus window pane acid. Just flooded the East Coast with hundreds of thousands of hits. Made a bunch of money. Pissed everybody off. People wanted to kill him. Like he was being looked for, like hunted, and uh, and had to go way underground. But it killed the gel uh, market because everyone figured and, it was bunk. Yeah, because after he had flooded the market, you know, and it was all bunked, and no one would buy it. So we had to. Switch over. We went back to blotter. That's interesting. So maybe that's why I never got to see it. Maybe of this I'm, junkie friend of yours. Yeah, yeah, Tommy, who I don't know, he's probably dead by now. But uh, yeah, Tommy flooded flooded the whole East Coast with with bogus gels, and then they couldn't sell them. So we had to we did, you know switched over to uh, blotter and uh, microdot. Don't you think it's also interesting? Like I've been hearing a lot about acid families, this acid family concept since. Basically, since I started making Dobie, the first time I even heard of it was like in 2011 in treatment. There was some dude who sold acid who was my roommate who told me about an, a Northern California acid family. And I'd never heard the phrase, but wouldn't I mean, like, I'm surprised there's no movie about the acid family. I mean, I think probably not that I know that uh, they were pretty smart because they kept it undercover and they kept it undercover. Uh, they had uh, a, 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 a smart business plan in that there was a couple guys that were on the top of the pyramid they only sold to six people no more they had six customers those six people were only allowed to also only sell to six people super savvy system yeah and so once you got past that you know down after that second tier of six then there were then you could sell to you know as many people as you wanted but those two top tiers so there, you know, were only there was like six people, you know, and then there was thirty six. There was thirty six people. There was six people, and there was two people, you know. And and for at those tiers, you weren't allowed to, say, you know, like if they found out you had veered off the program, there were repercussions. You know, they didn't fuck around. You know, they were hippies, but they were also serious. They were gangsters, right? You know, they, I mean, it was millions of dollars, you know, and and they 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 had. You know, I mean, like I said, they gave me a gun when I was a 15 year old kid. They weren't fucking around. No, they weren't. You know, like, and they were like, if anybody comes, you shoot them. Right. You know, and uh, and they never got toppled either, right? No, I, uh, one of the cells finally did get did get cracked, and they went down. You know, say you know, but it was but when that happened, basically, I think at that time, uh, everybody kind of closed shop. You know, made, people made a lot of money, and they you know a lot of people retired, and I think that that was you know like they. I, I know a lot of people retired, you know. So the acid family is done. I mean, that was, yeah, that was years ago. And you so know. you're you're 15, a lieutenant will say. Well, I would, not when I was 15. I, I worked my way up. It took took a couple of years, you know. Okay, so but, how so how old are you once you're really doing shit? 
So by the so what happened is I was working for the family, but uh, also Fangs started taking off and we started touring, and so I had a I had a I had a program, you know, because we were we were in a different city every night. Or back then you tour, you you know, be a couple days in a town. I would go to a town, you know, let's like roll into say Indianapolis, Indiana, and say we're going to be there, especially if we were there for like two or three days. I'd say, okay, who who sells weed in town? I'd ask the promoter, whoever were you know the punk rockers, who, where can I buy some weed? And, and they'd say, well, it's this guy. I'm like, well, can you take me and introduce me? And so I would go and have him introduce me to the local weed dealer. And I'd say, hey, look, I'm an acid dealer. I can get you really good acid, really cheap. Uh, if you're interested, when I get back to California, I'll send you some. If you like it, then let's do business. You know, so usually after we come back from tour, I'd have, you know, 10 to 20 addresses. And I would just, on the strengths, send out 100 hits, you know, to all these people. And say, oh, you know, for, the first one's free. You know? The first hundred are free. First hundred are free. You know, amazing. Here, here's a hundred. It's acid. If you want to do business, call me. Uh, and it was all uh, Western Union and mail order. Was that your plan or their plan? That was my plan. I just started doing that on my own. You were like, "Fuck it, I'm touring anyway. I might as well find some contacts, make my money like this." Absolutely. And they would Western Union the money, and then you'd send I, them I, sheets. I, one day mailer, you you know you you Western Union me the money, and I will have your acid in the mail tomorrow. Acid was the only drug that I sold successfully. It was a lot. It's, it's easy. It's, to, it's, it's easy it, to make money with acid. It, well, it's also it's like they say, don't get high on your own supply. It's hard to <laughs> eat your profit yeah. in acid. You know, it it, it 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 makes it a lot safer as without far as, just going bananas. Yeah. You know, you know, as far as business goes, you know, it's far. You know, I thought, like if if I tried to sell heroin, that never would have fucking worked. You know, no, I could barely. Whenever I mean, I didn't sell much heroin, but whenever I got a lot and I was meant to sell it, I I, I <laughs> might break even. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah, if you were lucky. Yeah, yeah if you were lucky, yeah. exactly. But yeah. it's it's a mess with acid. It wasn't like that. With and and with acid, I would pay. We I don't remember how much we'd pay, but we'd make enough money that like it was a good business in college. Oh no, yeah, right. I mean, and so I would get grams, you know, through you know through the family. I would get grams at that time. They were it was twenty five hundred bucks for a gram, so it was twenty five cents a hit to me. Right. And so, you know, I mean, this is also a long fucking time ago. This is like the 80s. So I don't know. We're talking like 40 years ago now or whatever. But uh, so I would sell, you know. So like, sheets like 25 bucks. So Well, I would, I would double it. So I'd sell sheets for 50 bucks. No, but what I'm saying, if you sent one out, you're basically giving somebody 25 bucks. Oh, yeah, bucks giving and, somebody 25 bucks. You know, it's totally worth it. But even the cost, I was selling acid at 50 cents a hit wholesale. To you know, all over the country, but it was really good acid, a, and it was that cheap. So you could like anybody who was a businessman, uh, that you know they w- would jump on it. You know, like this is great acid, and it's cheap, and it's as regular as I want to do it. You know, so I mean, I I built up a you know a, a lot of clientele all over the United States by the time I was eighteen years old. Now, one thing that it's hard for me to to comprehend because you were a serious alcoholic, a serious drug addict, a serious musician, and yet you had this business like you're developing a clientele, and you're all fucking deranged. Like you managed <laughs> to keep that shit together. I did. I you know, and, and the other thing is like I I managed to go to practice. You know, and all that time you're shooting coke, you're shooting speed. speed. When does dope show up? So. Coke. If anybody shot a lot of coke, at some point, you know, you kind of want to come down. And yeah. So, so I had this this coke dealer, and like he was a he was a big time coke dealer, but 
he would shoot coke on the sly and so none of his other friends like shot coke so he so i'd go to his house and we'd spend like three days shooting coke till we like barfed our guts out you know it was fucking horrible but then he'd break out some heroin so we could come down and actually like pass out did you ever come down with the quaaludes was that like a thing that was also a thing quaaludes were also good not as good as heroin (laughs) i will say that uh, heroin was much more immediate. You know, like if you're gacked out of your mind on coke. It's the perfect it, oh, antidote. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So I always started making sure I had some, you know, if I was going on a coke run, I made sure I had some heroin, you know, so I could fucking, you know, shoot coke till I ran out of money and then have a shot of dope to fucking knock myself out. But I really liked the heroin. <laughs> and I, I quickly just stopped wasting my time getting to the heroin by shooting the coke and just started fucking, you know, shooting, shooting heroin, you know. Because you probably had extra money because you're making all this money. Yeah, no, it was. You could have just done the coke and the heroin. I could have. And, and there was times when, you know, I do speed balls, you know, I wasn't, you know, but uh, but I really like once I started doing heroin, I, I, I was like, I loved heroin. I just. Me I, too. It, you know, yeah, it's just it's a thing, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I really liked it. It was a, it was a problem because I was my first. I was strung out when I was 16, you know, like I had a habit, you know, like I uh, had to kick, you know, like it was like, well, that's uh, the fucked up thing about being a drug addict who makes that much money and they're young. You know what I mean? Cause you have all the, the ability to, to buy drugs, like, like a, a rich competent adult yet you're 16 and you're in a band and you don't have good judgment and then you get fucking strung out on heroin. So like, why wouldn't your habit grow? Yeah. You know, it, and it's, uh, the, so, so I was strung out, uh, what had happened as far as like the family had gone, the guy that had brought me in, uh, I ended up getting together with his wife. And so it created this like love triangle. It got super like, I mean, there were at one point I thought that I was going to get shot, you know, but there were no bullets in the gun. Because you, you, you had sex with the, the boss in the acid family. I had sex with the wife. boss's wife. But in the acid family. It, yes. But now he was he said, a hippie? Yeah, he was a hippie gangster, you know. Like a long-haired gangster guy? Long-haired gangster. Who, who dosed occasionally? Yeah, and, and shot dope and coke. Right, and, right. and his dad was a gangster in L.A. And then he was like, so... I had, he had told me it was okay for me to have sex with her, you know? He was like, I'm cool. You know, well, yeah, I was guarding the house and he was in New York, uh, cause he had a girlfriend out here and we were doing a lot of business out here. He was in New York and, and his wife came up and, and can kiss me, you know, cause she wanted to get laid, you know? And I freaked out and I called, you know, called. This is your livelihood yeah, and you he's know, a gangster. And, and he's, and this is like, it was this is like my father. I looked up to this guy, you know, and I, and I called him. I'm like, dude, you got to have somebody come out and watch the house. He's like, what's up? I'm like, well, I, you know, I got to be honest. Kathy kissed me. I kissed her back. Like, if I stay here, you know, I know we're probably going to fuck. And, I, and I'm not going to do that to you, you know. So, and he's like, dude, just go fuck her. And he's like, it's cool. I don't even trip. Go, you know, she needs to get laid. Go fucking bang the shit out of her. It's all good. So... I'm like, are you sure? Like, you know, I was like, is this a real? This, okay? Is this what we do? Yeah, here? Is this how this works? Is that acid family? Is this, is this uh, like hippie culture? Right, free exactly. Love? What's really going on here? So he's like, no, no, it's all good. So we, so we start. So then we start banging on the on the regular. So it, that wasn't a problem. But when things got problematic, was 
he came back one time from New York because he was spending like half the time in New York. And when he came back, she told him, and, you know, I would go, I was on the couch when he was back. But one time he came back and he was like, no, now you're on the couch and Sammy's in the bed. And that's when, that's when. She, she that's, should never have set you up like that. That's though. when he went for the gun, but she was smart enough to have hit the bullets. And uh, yeah, so that was, you know, that created some, that created some problems, you know, for me. Uh, but, but over time, what happened, you know, was basically she ended up moving back to Southern California. He ended up kind of getting shipped off to Texas and, and by the family because he was super strung out on heroin. I actually had kicked and had kind of pulled my shit together at like 17, 18. So I was chipping, you know, but I wasn't strung out and I was, and I was, you know, dealing, you know, I was making money. And so I was able to roll for quite a few more years, you know, after that, you know, uh, uh, still working, you know, I mean, like I said, I, I moved to Germany, you know, it, when I was 19, I moved the band to Germany and I started dealing over, you know, overseas. Selling acid in Germany, making, making Germany. a shitload of money yeah. And, yeah. and playing music. Playing music, yeah. I mean, uh, to all the crazy German punks. Right. It was, it, uh, for me, uh, like, I love shooting heroin. I love getting loaded, but I fucking love music. You know, I love punk rock music. I love playing music. So everything I did was always in some way kind of trying to f- keep keep things moving like fund you know fund the band making sure we we had uh access to shit we needed being able to to do things you know i mean that's always been like punk rock saved my life you know um do you think that if you hadn't had the side business and all of the you know because like whatever you're a drug addict but you're also a big time drug dealer do you think if you hadn't had the distraction of dealing, you would have put more attention into the band? Maybe. I mean, like, I never, cl- like, I'm a singer. I'm not a musician. You know, maybe if I had not been, you know, like, hustling since I was. But you also singing. wrote the songs. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a song. You know, I, I write songs. You know, I'm, I'm definitely like, a, uh, I write all the lyrics. And a lot of famous people yeah. have, have covered your music. Like, That's- I mean, like, there's, like, your reach is, is far and wide. And like that nobody knows, but it's all okay. No. <laughs> well, it, it's it's no, some it's people know, you yeah, know. Yeah, so I know some people know. No, no, we we've touched. Uh, there's been a lot of bands that have covered our songs. Metallica covered, you know, a Fang song. Green Day covers a Fang song. Uh, Didn't Nirvana play Nirvana it? Nirvana covers a cover, covered a Fang song. Butthole Surfers, Mud Honey. There's like that part of the whole thing is 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 mind blowing. But I mean, there's also some of that. It, it, it is and it isn't. I used to sell acid to the butthole surfers, you know, like, and so uh, Nirvana, I never had a personal connection with Metallica. We used to party together, you know, back, you know, they were from the East Bay. So, you know, like the metal and punk scene. So Green Day, they were from the East Bay. They were a couple generations behind me, but we were like, you know, the. In the same the, legacy, lineage. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know. It's just those bands like became some of the biggest bands in the fucking world. But know? they weren't selling tens of thousands of hits of acid <laughs> on the side. That's exactly my no, point. No, they were probably trying to fucking learn how to play guitar. Right. Yeah. They, they were they were focused. They weren't like and they and you know, 
Nirvana, like obviously he got very sidetracked and shooting dope and coke and everything. Um, but he managed to, he wasn't selling tens of thousands of hits of acid no. either. I'm just offering you something that maybe it doesn't matter now, but like maybe that was a piece of why Fang isn't Metallica because you were like the kingpin of fucking doses. Cause, cause I was a little busy. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was a busy over here. Yeah, exactly. Why? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you come back, you know, and, and, and what's up with the acid business? Like, like how did, cause like, that's where we get, right. Isn't that where the story turns? Yeah. So, I mean, so we moved there, I was 19, moved the band to Germany in 85. And, you know, so I started, you know, setting up things in mostly in Germany, but you know, selling acid in Europe, uh, did some deals in the UK. Um, but after we lived there for a year, we toured, we did, wrote, you know, we recorded a wrote and recorded a record over there that we, we came back because we wanted to continue, you know, I needed to continue making money, you know, uh, and uh, and continue touring in the states too, you know, like keep keep working the band in in, in bigger ways, or you know, and so so then we were back and forth, you know, I I repicked up with my connects in the U.S. and then I you know was sending acid to Germany on the regular, and uh, and then we were going back and forth, you know, uh, for a couple years, but then that was the the beginning of the end, you know, also. When I was in Germany, I just drank. I never shot dope for whatever reason. You know, like I can't really explain why that happened because there was hair. Like I, I shot dope one time. Maybe you sense the danger. Like when you have a habit and you're in another country, you're so vulnerable. Maybe, you know, I mean, I, I don't know the the people things clicked so well when we got to Germany, you know, as far as just musically and, and business wise, it, it just but all the people that I that we were like super tight with, they were anti heroin specifically. They drank like fish. They fought. They you know. They so were, that was probably a big piece. So of it. I think that that had a lot to do with it. You know, and I wasn't strung out. You know, I I kicked. You know, and I've been chipping. But I got there, and so I just kind of left it alone. But uh, when I came back to the U.S. when I'm when I'm back in Oakland, you know, then I'm I'm shooting dope, and so that's. So I was able to maintain that for for a while, you know. Would it be like when you came back to Oakland, were you like, finally, I can shoot heroin? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right. Like I, so I'm like, okay, let's go cop right now. Right. You know, like I had this one heroin dealer. She's dead now. But I started copping heroin from her when I was 16. You know, she was much older than me. And I literally, this woman, I would cop, I copped heroin from her from the time I was 16 until the time I got clean at 41. I mean, off and on. That's funny. We both got clean at forty one. Yeah, you know, right. And but she was she was always there. Like if I was in the Bay Area. Well, it's like one, when you get home, you want to have what you want to eat. Like oh, I can't wait to get that it's sandwich. Com- comfort food. Exactly. No, but I'm serious. <laughs> yes. You like you you probably come home from Germany. You're like I'm done with the right. schnitzel and the fucking. I'm gonna go see you know, Patty. And yeah. I'm gonna go shoot some dope. Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so for a while it worked because we were touring so much. You know and. Back then, it was, uh, you know, like, uh, later on, I toured as a junkie, you know, and having to cop and everything. That's, that's fucking gnarly hard work, you know. But usually for me, I would just start to have a habit, and we'd go out on the road for, like, three months. So I'd feel kind of shitty. I'd just drink a lot and, you know, get, you know, like, just kick on the road, you know. But if, if you're only shooting dope for, like, three months, then your habit's not that bad, you know. And so I was able to kind of maintain that that for a while where I'm just about to get strung out and we go out on tour for three months, you know, just about come home, 
be home for a few months, and then we're going to Europe for a while. So I was able to do that for a while until uh, till the axe fell, and that that happened. Uh, I was twenty three, and uh, my girlfriend, who'd been dealing acid for me in Germany, she ended up getting busted. You know, they were having her roommate's boyfriend was selling hash out of the apartment. I mean, they they were you know slinging dope out of this apartment, and they would have big parties. They were not uh, they were not trying to be low key about it, and so they finally got enough attention that they got raided. And so they found a bunch of acid. They found a bunch of hash. The roommate just immediately rolled. Oh, it's all coming from Sammy from fucking California. Da, 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 da. So I got a phone call and uh, from a friend of mine, and he he calls me because we were supposed to, we had a tour set up, a record. We're like we were recording. We recorded in Germany with uh, Boy George's sound guy. He wow. had a recording studio in Bremen. Uh, great fucking great great studio engineer. Had this all set up three days before we're supposed to get on the plane. I get a phone call. Astrid's busted. You can't come to Germany. You're wanted by Interpol. They know that you've been, you know, sending drugs and uh, dealing acid in in Europe for some time. So that's when the habits really came home. You know, that's when I, you know, that's when like I got stuck. You know, then I was stuck in the Bay Area for long enough where I really got a fucking gnarly habit going. Also, you needed to escape the fear like these people were after you. for the knock, right. knock, knock on the door because I didn't know if Interpol was going to come to America and sure. find me. You know, like I, I mean, punk rock was underground, but if you, that wasn't hard to find either. No. You know, they not, knew who you were, they, they knew, knew where I, you lived and they, they knew what you did. But yeah, why didn't they go after you? You know, I don't know. I think that Maybe, um, I don't know if, I think you really had to be a pretty big uh, criminal criminal for Interpol to waste the time and, and money to actually come and get you. Right. And I just wasn't a big enough fish. Right. You know, they figure, well, I mean, just like a lot of police, they don't actually go look for people. They know that they're wanted. They know they're going to fucking tick Someone's going to fuck up eventually. Right. So they figured, okay, they knew I was supposed to be coming when I didn't show. They're like, uh. He'll, he knows. He'll, he'll, he knows he'll show up sometime and we'll fucking get him, you know? Right. So, uh, so I got super strung out and, and things just started to fall apart, you know, just like with anything, when you're really strong, you said, how did you keep it together? Uh, I mean, by, nobody can keep I, it together. Miles Davis can't keep it together. Uh, yeah, nobody can keep it I together. I could not keep it together, you know? So business started suffering and I super strung out and mainly the band, like, you know, everybody knew I was a junkie. I mean, everybody knew I, been a junkie off and on anyway Mm -hmm. but it it just became really obvious you know as far as like all the clubs and just you know and uh it was you know i mean just like any other fucking junkie yeah it 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 does it's not a good look it 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 all comes out in the wash because you're also a dick you get angry you're unreliable right it's all those things it's all those things and so finally the band is like and they were already pissed even though you know they had reaped the benefits of my drug dealing business for years. Sure. They got pissed that, you know, our European tour got canceled, that we couldn't go back. We tried to record the record that we were going to record in Germany in, in the United States, in San Francisco, and I was a fucking wreck. You know, I couldn't fucking... Get like, it I together. I could barely sing. I was, you know, just fucking gout all the time. And so they finally were like, fuck you. And, and they walked on me. You know, and so without music... All I had was heroin and, and drug dealing, you know, and so that's what, you know, 
that's where all everything went horribly, horribly awry. Uh, there was a, a woman that I'd connected in Virginia, like I'd connected with many other of my customers. She was, she, you know, I, I met her. She was a pot dealer. She started selling acid for me. She did really well in that area of the country. And uh, uh, when I started falling apart, um, she was such a good businesswoman. I'm like, hey, you know, and, and we had, you know, we had a relationship. I'm like, why don't you move to California and, like, be my full-time old lady. Uh, and we'll work together. And we'll work together. You know, I'll bring you in. Uh, and so she came. And, uh, you know, she was not a drug addict. And I, you know, as I'm, I was, you know, one of those junkies. Oh no, I'm, I'm gonna kick. It's gonna be okay. I'll, I'll go on methadone. I'll do the, you know, and I, with no intention whatsoever. You right. Know. And she believed you. She believed me. You know, and and after a while, she realized that she couldn't believe me anymore. Well, enough is enough at some point. Right. And so she had hooked up. I had this customer out of Texas. He was my biggest customer. He would come in a couple times a month. And buy large quantities of acid, fifty thousand, hundred thousand hits at a time, and uh, and sometimes I would be out of town. So when I was out of town, she would take care of business for me. So they formed a relationship, the two of them, uh, and I didn't realize they had formed a very tight relationship, you know. And she was sick of my shit, and so uh, what happened was I I was uh, uh, I was at home. I, you know, I'd been out of town, but I was back at home and we were doing a deal. The guy, you know, my best customer was in, he was at the house and, uh, uh, I got a phone call and this, it was this guy out of, uh, Salt Lake city and I'd set him up in business. He, and like when I met him, he was a pot dealer in Salt Lake city and I'd literally set him up in business. He was about to lose his house. He had like a, a baby, but you know, he was struggling and I'm like, look, and I fronted him a bunch of acid. I'm like, why don't you see what you can do with this? You know? And it, he was able to like turn it around, you know, financially. And so he calls and I answer the phone and he's acting squirrely as fuck. I'm like, dude, what's up? Cause he was like, well, is she there? And I'm like, yeah, why? He knew what was going on. He, so finally I'm like jamming. I'm like, dude, like I fucking pulled you out of a, a hole. Like you need to let me know what the fuck's happening. And so he said, look, he goes, he goes, you're right. He goes, look, uh, she's been saying that you're fucking people over that you're ripping people off that uh, she's going to move to Texas. We're doing this one last deal and that she's going to, you know, and that to deal with only her from now on and that she's going to pick things up after this deal, like in two or three weeks from Texas. Did you find that out before you found out that she was fucking the dude? No, I didn't. So I, so that, that's the first phone call, like in my drug induced state, you know, haze, I, you know, I didn't it's betrayal. I, I didn't think any, you know, like I had no idea any of this was going on. Cause I'm fucking loaded all the time, you know. Like if I hadn't, anyway. If 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 this is, I was so I was I was shocked. I didn't know what to do, uh, and I'm sitting there just reeling, and uh, the phone rings again, and it's this friend of ours in Kimberly, South Carolina, and he was he did a little business, but he was mainly a friend. He was a friend of hers, but he'd become a friend of mine, and he gets on the phone and he's like, hey. Just real quick, I got to run, but I want to let you guys know that that money came and I put it in the bank, you know. So I know that I hadn't sent the student any money, you know, and, and I've just got this other call finding out there's some shady shit going on. So I just played along. I'm like, cool, how much money is, is, is in there now? He goes, so there's like 20K. I just like, now there's like 20K in that account. It's, it's set aside. It's all good. I'm like, okay, thanks. Hung up the phone. So literally within like a 10 minute period, 
I find out that she's planning on moving to Texas. She's taking my business and she's been taking money and stashing it. Confirmed. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, so I I just leave the house. I don't say anything. I just walk out of the house. They didn't even know I was gone. I just walked and I went to my heroin dealer, you know, the, the woman that, uh, and I went and I shot a bunch of dope. I got a bunch of whiskey and, uh, uh, because you were so upset. I was, yeah, I was fucking crushed. You know, I, like you said, it was, it was a huge betrayal and I, I, I got super fucked up and, uh, and, and then I go, went back to, I was going to confront her. And when I walked in the door, of the apartment. I think they heard the, the car pull up. I walked in the door of my apartment and, and he's coming out of my bedroom, pulling his boxer shorts up. And that's, so then I went to, I was, you know, in my mind, I was going to kill both of them at that time. Uh, uh, luckily for him, uh, he saw that this was really bad and he literally like ran and I chased him around the apartment and then he, he ran out the door in his boxer and just took off. And then I went back in, and uh, she didn't make it out of the apartment alive. Right. And um, and I can't imagine, like, first of all, her name was Dixie. Yeah. And I don't know what it feels like. You know, I know what it feels like to be high, and I know what it feels like to get sober. I don't know what it feels like to have obviously killed somebody. But more than that, you've done these interviews over and over and over again right. since then. Yeah. And every time you do it, I mean, like we we actually did this interview before, we did. and um, yes. and and I feel you tensing up to tell this story. Like, what? I mean, first thing is like, what happens to you when you tell the story now, twenty, thirty three years yeah, later? Thirty. I mean, uh, it's it's the last thing I want to do is tell the story. Is tell the story, right? You know, but uh, but also it's you know I. Anybody who's in recovery knows that, you know, you, you have to, you have to fucking bury your soul. You know, like if you're ever going to get well, you know, you got to be honest. You got to say what happened. You got to, you got to talk about it. You know, that, uh, I, it's, you know, um, it's nothing that's ever going to, you know, like I can't, I can't change what I did. I can't, I can't even up the scales, you know, like if you're into, Recovery literature, they say you will not regret the past. That's not my fucking story. I regret the past. Like, I'm never not going to regret what I did, you know. Uh, um, but I also, like, I have to talk about it, you know, because in the hopes that maybe somebody will hear it, and, you know, be in a, a, a moment where they can change the course of, of somebody, of, else's, somebody life. else's life and, and everybody else around them. Uh, you know, and, and make a different decision. Well, I've heard you yeah. be, I've heard you be interviewed also. And you talked about, I think you were referring to OJ Simpson and somebody saying how he got away with it. And you're like, nobody gets away with you, it. You don't get away with it. You know, I, I, you know, maybe if you're a, a true pure sociopath, which they do exist, but there's not very many of them. Um, then you, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I did years in prison. That's, you know, I pay every, you know, I pay every day for what I did and that's, I should. You know, it's not like I shouldn't pay for what I did. You know, I mean, I, I did a fucking horrible thing. You know, I have ghosts that live with me, you know, and they're, they're never going to go away, you know, and that's... How does that work now? How does that work now? I mean, if it's... This is... Uh, her name was Dixie. If I walk down the aisle in a grocery store and I see Dixie cups, that's, that, that's a ghost. It's talking to me right there. You know, uh, I mean, anytime that name comes up... Uh, 
you know, certain things I'll see that remind me of her, you know, those are ghosts. They're there, you know, and, and that's, uh, um, and that'll be with me till I die. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, um, at the time you're, you're, you were incredibly impaired. She had betrayed you on numerous levels and it's like, you were out of your fucking mind. I'm not making an excuse. No, I'm just it, trying to, to paint the picture here. Right. And that's, I mean, then there, there are no excuses, you know, for what I did, you know, and, and when you, you know, you get away from that moment of rage, you know, uh, which, you know, it's a window, you know, if you can get past that without doing anything, whatever happened, whatever anybody did to you, whatever resentment you're carrying, it, it doesn't justify the action. You know, it's uh, because the emotion will go away. Well, that's a huge lesson. And that's something like that everybody can benefit from. And it's just like, it's fucking horrible what had to happen. But to be able to share that lesson is some sort of a a good part of it. You know what I mean? Well, well, you got to, I mean, you can't, you know, uh, at least for me, like I said, the, the scales will never balance, you know, but certainly the fact that, uh, that I, I did live, that I did get out of prison, like then there's a certain responsibility for me to do what I can to try and help other people not make the same mistakes that I've made. Or if they have made the mistakes that I've made, have somebody they can talk to about it. So they can live. You know, so they can live. And, and, and ultimately, have, maybe they can be a person in the world that helps the next person exactly. and carries a good message right. and, and does the next right thing whenever they can. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, that also, you know, there's the recovery aspect. There's also, like, the life after prison aspect because you do a gang of time, it fucks you up. You know, if I mean, you already fucked up to Before. go to prison. Sure. But the recidivism rate in, in America is so bad because you get caught up in in the bullshit in prison and then, you you, you know, you're just stuck in that mindset. You can't, can't get out of it. So it's just a revolving door, you know. So it's like, okay, you can... You can do horrible things and you can you can get to the other side and, and, and try and, like you said, help people and, and pass it on. You can go to prison. You can get out. You can actually have a, a life after that. You can change. You can change. And But after this happened, you fled. Oh, I did, yeah. No, I uh, went on the run immediately. Uh, I actually was in New York for a while. I went first to Baltimore and then I was here in New York hiding out for a while. So when you're here, are you like, does that pop into your mind? The places you were like when you're here now and you're walking around, you're, is, does, does that period pop into your head at all? Or there's so many different New York periods. I, I yeah, I've spent a lot of time over the years in New York. So there's, there's, and New York is not the same New no, York. No, it's memories it's, on top of memories. You, they take a store down and it almost disappears uh, from your head. Yeah. It's, it's like a different place. It is like a different place. And so it's, it's definitely, so much has changed here, but there are certain, uh, there are certain memories, you know, from being on the run. I mean, I, I, I remember I was copping in Harlem, you know, at that time, you know, cause the lower East side, this was, uh, 89, sure. the lower East side, you know, there was, they were just selling bunk bags at this point in the lower East side, you know, like it, that used to be the place to cop. And by the late eighties, you know, they started the gentrification process. had just, they knew they could get over. Yeah just started so i was going up uh to 126 and copping up there and uh like i i don't know i couldn't i could don't know if i could find it but you know like i almost got killed by like a 10 year old kid up there you know he's he wanted a dollar and he had a gun you know so every time i drive through harlem i I think of that and that was when i was on the run you know right 
you know, so that was, uh, sure. How did they catch you? So I, I ran for a while. I finally, uh, was up in Alaska and, uh, you know, because I, I knew that I had to kick, like I couldn't keep running if I'm strung out on heroin, you know, like it, it became pretty apparent. It's like, dude, you just can't, it, like I'd had a good, you know, I was staying ahead of the game. But I knew it was just a matter of time if I'm strung out that I, they were going to catch up with me. And Interpol has you on their list at yeah, the same I mean, time. I'm, I'm fucked. I can't, you know, so like I was in New York. I was trying to get to Brazil and that fell apart. You know? How did you stay well? Like, how did you stay not getting sick on that? On that? I, I mean, I was copping regularly, you know. Wherever I, you'd show up in like Wisconsin, you could get dope? Uh, to, to, I was always pretty good at that, you know. Like I could usually find... A methadone punk rock kind of sanctuary for yeah, dope find, fiends. find some heroin somewhere. Uh, but finally, I, I went back to California because finally I was running out of money. You know, and I'm like, dude, I got to get back to California, hit a couple licks, make some money. And I there was a chick that I knew, uh, known her, you know, basically all my life. She was a, a junkie and uh, she was, a, you know, a, a what are they? Um, a sex worker. Uh, junkie sex worker. You're looking worker. for the right word I for was, it. Yes. Yeah. A junkie sex worker, and she'd actually gone to Alaska and gotten clean, you know. And she knew me; she knew I was on the run. She was like, she was solid OG, you know. And she's like, "Sammy, come up to Alaska. You can kick up here. I will take care of you, and then you can figure out your shit." So you made it to Alaska. I did. I went up there, and and uh, I actually did find heroin, which blew everybody's mind up there. Where did you find it, I, dude? We, I, I was like four days into the kick. I'm like, and she didn't have a car, but she knew a guy that had a car. And I'm like, get a guy with a car over here. I'll find some fucking heroin. She's like, nobody. nobody Did she want to get high too? Of course. Yes, of course. You know, and so, and he did too. He had come up, this this guy, he was from Alaska, but he'd come up because he had gone down to Seattle, got super strung out, came out to get his shit together. But, you know, he still wanted to, you know, he wasn't like in recovery. He was just taking a, a breather. I think he probably had to run out of Seattle. Anyway, he shows up. We're driving around. I'm like, just take me to the shitty neighborhood. I'm like dope sick. We find this one guy. And he's trying to just work a hustle, which is fine. You know, and I, I won't, you know, I keep, he's trying to get me to give him the money. I keep teasing him with the money, but he's taking me to these neighborhoods, you know, and, and he, he gets out of the car, you know, it comes back, but I won't give him the money, you know, but while we're, it's like maybe the third spot that, you know, we're sitting there and I see this other dude walking down the street and this is in Alaska at night. And it's snowing. And you were like, I know that's the guy. I, I'm like, that dude's high. Yeah. Like I see, you know, I was like, you know, and I jump out of the car and I just walk up. I'm like, hey, like I need to cop. I'm sick. Can you help me? And he's like, yeah, come on. <laughs> Did but, you leave the other dealer in the car and we're done No, with he him? had bounced. He had, right. he had like went to go because he was just trying to get, he was just trying to get the money. You know, he was just trying to work a hustle. So he came back. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. You know, and I found like, but the thing was, it was like so expensive there. And I was already four days in. We didn't have a bunch of money. I mean, I barely even got well. You know, they kind of got high, but the heroin in Alaska, there wasn't a lot, and it was really expensive, and it wasn't very good. Did you say it was garbage? Garbage. Yeah, garbage. So, uh, so basically, I kicked. You know, and and uh, and and so it wasn't soon after that. So I kicked. I you know got my shit together, but. Uh, I got I got busted. I mean, fairly shortly after that, I was up there. We were doing crime. We were kind of running amok. Uh, but what? What happened? kind of crime? Uh, so, okay, well, so here he's, he's like this is a dopey story. Uh, arm robbery in Alaska in the snow. Okay, have you ever tried to drive really fast 
uh, in the snow. I can barely drive really fast in good weather. But anyway. So me and this dude, he's, uh, he's dead now. This guy, Jerry, uh, you know, like we were, we were, we were doing crime up there. And, and so we were doing, we were robbing liquor stores, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm wanted for murder. I'm figuring it's all over for me anyway. It didn't really fucking matter. And so we're going out to rob liquor stores. But the thing about like, you know, when it snows like that, you know, this middle of winter, there's snow on the ground every 24 seven, you know, this is Alaska. So you can't just peel out, you know? And so I would go into the liquor store, you know, and I'd pull the gun and I'd be like, give me, the, give me the money. And I'd usually get a bottle of booze too. I'd say, you know, give me that bottle of booze and everything in the cash register. That was my stick or whatever. And, and then I would have to walk, you know, like run across the store, but then you have to walk slowly out of the store because you'll slip and fall on your ass. And we had the tailgate down and I would, he would start driving away as he was seeing me leave. And then we, I would just jump on the back of the tailgate and we'd drive away from the armed robbery at like five miles an hour. Cause you had to. Cause yeah, cause you had to. It's like so fucking retarded, you know, or like doing it fucking, you know, robbing liquor stores, driving away, you know, like at five miles an hour, you know, um, but at any rate, uh, not long after that, I, you know, it, it didn't last too long. I knew I had to get out of Alaska. There was a, a friend of mine who she was kind of keeping tabs on who was ratting on me. And so she would let me know. And so she found out that they, somebody found out I was in Alaska. She's like, Sammy, you got to get out of Alaska. So I went to the airport and it was snowed in. And I came back 24 hours later, and that was enough time for them to get their shit together. So when I went into the airport, federal marshals were waiting for me, and they just they snatched me up, and uh, and then they extradited me back to Oakland to face 25 to life. When you're when you're traveling and and fleeing, you know, in in as a fugitive, right? Yeah. Like, and you you've just killed your girlfriend who betrayed you. Um, and you're and you have a heroin habit like that's like it's the worst thing I've ever heard. I mean, like to, to be generous, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And like fucking like how much is guilt? How much is fear? Like, do you remember that period, or was it so fucking traumatically crazy that you can't possibly remember it? I I don't think I really I, I really started processing anything for years. Right? You honestly. how could you? I, you know, like what was but, that period like? What I, do you remember? I do remember like when I find, when I walked into that airport. You know, like, uh, I, I've been a dope dealer since I was 12, mm -hmm. you know, and so I, I have a good gut instinct and I walked into that airport and I knew I was going to get busted. Right. Like, I just knew. And, uh, and I, and I just, you know, and I, and I gave up, you know, like, do we talk about surrender? Yeah. There was, there was a absolutely when I walked in there I, and it, now if I'd walked in there and I'd saw like 20 cops, you know, but these were undercover, they were, you know, dressed like civilians They they didn't. You know, but if I'd have like walked in the door and I'd seen like twenty cops, I would have ran. You know, I would have just turned around and, and left. Um, but I, I walked in there knowing I was going to get busted. And, and there I, had to have been some sort of weird relief, like that you can finally be done. No, there was just like you said, there was a surrender. It's like okay, you know, like I I can't keep running it anymore. You know, and there was an ab absolute surrender that happened. But as far as like processing what I did, that took that took it was years later. You know, because then. I'm in the system, you know, first I'm, I'm brought down to, you know, like I'm extradited. I'm brought down to Oakland. I'm in County jail, uh, and County jail in Oakland is, is fairly rough. Uh, and then, you know, I, I finally pled out, they offered me a manslaughter deal, you know, 11 year manslaughter deal. And, you know, I'm on the bus to San Quentin, you know, and, uh, being, uh, in County jail, 
fighting, you know, but I mean, I was looking at 25 to life, uh, fighting that case, not a good time to process. No, <laughs> not a good place to process going, rolling into prison. Also, it's just like, uh, it's, you know, you, if anything, you become far more hardened. You have to you be know, to, to survive to survive, it. you know, and did you a, get clean in there? Well, I'd kicked in Alaska, so I was actually, when they busted me, I, you know, I still shot, I chipped a little bit, and I drank every day, but when I was busted, I actually did not have a habit, so, you know, it, it, that was, I went up to Alaska to get clean, because the last thing I wanted to do was be in a position where if I got busted, and I'm looking at 25 to life, and I'm dope sick, I was terrified of that. So the kick in Alaska actually took? It, it worked, it did. Even though I did find heroin there, you know, we got high that one diet. It, it didn't really even hardly do anything to me. And then I'm so far, like, I, I, I was four days into a kick, three more days of just trying to hold booze down, and then I could start to function again. You know, and then I'm drinking pretty much every day. Uh, we got high a couple of the times, but the heroin there sucked so bad, and it was so expensive. Like, that last, the, the last fucking liquor store, I got $32 at the liquor store. Right. The last one I robbed. What can you really get? Right. And, and $32 for Alaska heroin wouldn't even get me high. Right. You know, so I'm like, you know, it was just, you know, ridiculous fucking petty hoodlum, you know, bullshit. But I, I get to, so I'm, when I get to jail, I'm not, I don't have a habit, you know, and, uh, and when I got to prison, I, I didn't have a habit, but. Uh, you know, I, I learned how to make Pruno in county jail, like right off the bat. So were you, yeah. were you drinking just about every day when you well, were? Well, it's not that easy. You know, it takes, it takes a while to make Pruno, you know, like you. Chris was a big Pruno guy and he would talk about making hooch here and there. You know, you, you'd have, cause you have to have a spot to do it. It smells, you know, and so, you know, uh, we had it down uh, uh, till like about once every two weeks, I had a pretty good batch. That I, you know, and then you'd get fucked up, you know. So when you're in prison, your 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 habits are not there. Your vices. What are your vices in prison? Like how? What's the difference? Like because you had been a fucking total dope fiend, total drug addict, doing everything. Yeah. From age fourteen, basically. Yeah. And how old are you when you get busted? Twenty four. Twenty four years old. Ten years. Ten straight, years of of getting. And then you're day. not. Yeah. And I've seen pictures of you in jail and in prison. And you like kind of seem like you had your shit together. I was sorry. Well, you know, that's, so what do you do in prison? I mean, it wasn't that I stopped shooting dope, but it was just, it was like, it wasn't, it was on occasion. You know, that there was a guy that I was in county with. He was this, he was this old uh, white dude, been in and out of prison a bunch of times, been stabbed up. And he, he like, he taught me the ropes. He schooled you. He did. He's like, this is, do this, don't do this. This is what's going to be expected of you. When you go in, you know, this is what you got to do. And he really, uh, really broke it down for me. You know, we, we had a real tight bond. He was a super, super solid guy. And, and so I knew what to expect when I got to San Quentin. I knew what I had to do. And, you know, I, I definitely, you know, shot dope in prison. I was involved in, in running d- drugs in prison, but I never got strung out in prison. I never, I never gambled in prison. Uh, now, I, I ran card games and cheated you know, and hustled, but I didn't, you, you never know, got caught doing uh, that though. No, never got, that would have been yes, bad. That would have been bad, you know? Uh, but, uh, it, I never, you know, I was in San Quentin then I was in Soledad and, and Soledad at that time was, it was a, you know, that there was the, I was on the central yard, maximum security yard. 
it was a you know it was a hard prison like it was really fucking dangerous <laughs> you know and so you really had to uh you had to watch your back you had like hey you, you getting yourself into a position because i watched it happen over and over dudes would get strung out couldn't pay get killed or stabbed up or even worse pc up and then get stabbed up on another yard down what's the road. pc'd up protective custody so what happens in that situation so you know then your name is garbage you know like if you if you can't pay if you can't pay and you're afraid you're going to get killed then some guys will choose to go into protective custody the thing about the, but then you're like the biggest pussy in the world well yeah and the guards don't really give a shit about you so they're just going to throw you out on some other yard somewhere where else. someone else is going to find gonna, you yeah exactly so it, it there was a dude we were when i was in solano these guys they you know they're like this this guy he had a tattoo on his stomach from their crew you know and it, they were one of my homeboys you know one of my really type homeboys like hey can you help us out you know it wasn't my crew but i was tight with them and i'm like yeah i can i can help you out he didn't he didn't tell me we were going to hold this guy down and carve the tattoo off his stomach oh my you know? god i'm like smiley next time you say hey can you do me a favor you might want to give me a little more of a heads up about like what's about to fucking. Was that go like down. a laugh after the after Smiley removes the tattoo and you're like Smiley? Next time, tell me. If yeah, you need it's like it's, really. It's like that's like dark comedy to another it, it, level. It is dark comedy in the in a penitentiary in California. Yeah, you know, it's like come on, Smiley, give me a heads up. What's know? the worst thing that happened in in prison? Like like that you can remember? I mean, the worst thing that 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 I did, you know, when I was in San Quentin, uh, there was. Uh, you know, child molesters are, are, uh, they're prey, you know, and I had a celly, uh, you know, I was young. I was, you know, just trying to earn my bones. Uh, my celly was an older guy and he's like, Hey, there's a, you know, there's a child molester down the tier. We got to handle this, you know? And so we were on the fourth tier in Carson section in San Quentin. And we ran up on the guy and threw him over the fourth tier and he ended up in a wheelchair for life. Oh my God. You know? And I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not my place to make decisions about, you know, like, I don't know what he did. Most people that end up molesting people were molested as children. You know, I don't know what the solution there is. I really don't, but I know I'm not God and it's not my place to make that kind of a fucking move. Right. You know? Well, you were not in charge of what you were doing then in any capacity. No, I mean, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. People find recovery in prison, and the, that's just not what happened for you. No. You just found survival. Yeah, yeah, I found found all the homeboys, you know. What did it take uh, to find recovery ultimately? So uh, I'd been down a number of years, and uh, I was very involved in politics and in drug dealing, but I got married. It was a woman that we'd started writing. And she was like visiting you, right? Yeah, she kept she visiting me every week. You know, she, uh, I knew her Was she a street. fan? Well, no, she, but she was in the scene. And so I knew her. She from, was like a punk rock girl. She was a punk rock girl. I knew her from the scene. She was from Sacramento. Uh, and, and we'd started writing. And so we ended up, uh, we got married, you know, like we, uh, so five years. Did you get married in prison? Yeah, yeah, you have. You know, I mean, I was, yes, we got married in prison. Uh, you can get married in prison in California. It takes a long time. You got to jump through a bunch of hoops. So I've been down five years, super fucking institutionalized. Right. And uh, like I said, I was very involved in a bunch of shit. And I went on that first conjugal visit. 
And this was, I dropped down from a maximum to what was called a medium, from level four to level three points. I was in a slightly less, uh, you know, less protected, not protected, less uh, uh, militant prison. You know, level three is a little bit easier than level four. Um, But I'm in, so I'm in this visiting, it's a conjugal visit, they build these apartments. So you're like in 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 an apartment that's built into a prison. And I'm in there, and I'm with my wife, and she's making dinner, and there's a window above the kitchen sink, you know, and out that window, you could see over to where the yards were, and I'm sitting there on the couch, and it was it was just like this moment of clarity, you know, like I'd never had any kind of spirituality before. I was raised an atheist, but I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on the yard. Like, that's like everything I've been doing. Like I had a, I had a date, you know, like I'd taken a, a, a deal for 11 years. Like I had a date I was supposed to parole, but everything I'd done in prison wasn't going to make was that not, happen. Yeah, it was, I was just waiting to get busted for something, you know, else. And I just had gotten lucky so far. And, and, and it was, it was, it was just so clear. Like I could maybe change everything and I could maybe have this little, some little apartment somewhere. So you had life. the revelation in jail, total in prison moment of clarity in prison in a conjugal visit apartment with my wife. And it was just like, holy fucking shit. Was she sober? Uh, she wasn't sober, you know, but, but she wasn't an addict. She wasn't, she wasn't an addict, you know, at that time. And, um, and so it, it, like, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know, you know, uh, but I knew I had to change everything, you know? And so that's when, like, I, like fucking woke up the next day and it was like it like hit me like a ton of bricks like dude what did i do right like, where am i like dude i killed something like that's it, when it, it started that's to catch when up it started you. fucking to hit me and uh you know that's once you saw the life that you might actually like all of a sudden everything that you had done flooded into you yeah like all the fucking pain that i'd caused it was it was brutal you know uh but i i created a from from that day, I created a, this moral code, you know, much like the spiritual principles. I'm like, okay, dude, I'm not like I I've, I've got to fucking change everything, you know. Now, uh, given where I was and who I was rolling with, it was that was very. The the irony is is that I wasn't really scared before. I mean, there were moments because now you had rules yeah before that you could help smiley carve the tattoo off somebody but now what you have a code if smiley needs a favor you really need to know what you're gonna do and now if i like i might still have to hold some guy down while smiley carves the fucking tattoo off a guy but i'm gonna fucking pay for it somehow right spiritually if not actually yeah you know so so it was uh the next Six, eight months was that was the hardest time I did, you know, because I was uh, I still had to be involved in what I was involved in. I couldn't just say, you know, fellas, I'm out. I'm out. I'm just I'm not going to get high anymore. I'm not going to do this. You know, smiley, find someone else to hold them down. You know, you can't you just can't do that. You don't get you just don't get to walk away. But what happened for me, luckily, was I still I was still involved. I stopped getting high, though. You know, like they break off my issue every time shit came in on the yard because that was just the way it went. I would go sell it, you know, and I, I wasn't using, and uh, I just tried to keep my nose down as much as possible and until then I got, I actually dropped points and I went from a level three to a level two. The prison I went to was, uh, 
was a Disney fucking land. You know, it was Vacaville. Like I dropped on a level two points in it. There were politics there, but it was it was. It if was, you wanted to take over that prison, you probably could. Yeah, it was it was such a whole different game. Right. So it was easy for me to like change my whole program. Also, by that time, I'd been down for a long time. People knew me from other prisons, so I had a certain amount of respect too. So, like, I was able to do whatever kind of I wanted, you know, run my own program, and I got involved in a lot of positive things there. Reading books on tape for blind people on the streets. I set up this whole program. We were doing uh, uh, books uh, for kids, for blind kids, I, like uh, radio plays. You know, we did like Cinderella, a bunch of convicts sitting around a table making, you know, like doing it like a radio play. And that's kind of teaching you what life could be like. Right. It's like it's being a service. It's like it's not about me. It's like, okay, you know, like you get fulfillment from actually doing things for other people, you know. And so because of that, finally I was able to parole. You know, like I kept my nose clean. I kept out of trouble. My wife got pregnant and, you know, we were getting conjugal visits fairly regularly. Conjugal visits saved my life. I don't care what anybody says, you know. Because it gave you something to live for. It gave me something to live something for. Something good. And it, it, fuck, it, it gave me a change of perspective, too. Right. It gave it, you your... your, it, your uh, My moment of clarity. Exactly. My epiphany, you know. It also gave you your kid, right? And it gave, yeah, Max, uh, our, our firstborn, they were conceived. He was a, they were a conjugal visit baby. Amazing. You know, and so finally I paroled. I've got my, my moral code. You know, I've got my little nuclear family, you know, and I get out of prison, you know, and I just try trying to live life. And things went well. You know, for for uh, for a long time, I I you know, uh, alcoholics, drug addicts, we get clean, especially if we're hustlers. You know, we can we can hustle good shit too. You know, it's about being occupied more than anything. Yeah, well, it's about being busy. You know, that's that's. I mean, like for me, like it's being busy is well, you've everything. Been, you've been busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've been busy. You know, and it's and you're still here. You know, so so I got busy. Uh, I, you know, got a job, got a better job, a career, started my own business, bought property. My wife and I had another kid. Uh, no music. My daughter. Well, I, no, and I started playing music. Started doing music again. I uh, started touring. You when know, did you sober. get the teardrop tattoo? It was a long time ago. That when was, did you get that? In the pen. You know. Did they? Did you ask for it or did they just say you had to get no, it? No, 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 no. That was just part of the prison life. You know, if you... you it, if you've killed somebody, then, you know, because you, in prison, you can't go in there. Things are different now. Back then, tattoos meant something. You couldn't just roll in. Like, if you had a teardrop and you hadn't killed somebody, you'd probably get stuck. You know, it's like you, you can't front like that. But when you got the teardrop, they, did they, you don't say, give, I want a teardrop? Yeah, yeah, no. They, they're okay. like, all right, yeah. No. You don't, you're not forced to get the no, It's not no, like no, the scarlet letter. They don't hold you down. No, right. no, no. Okay. That was just, you know, that was part of, the, you know, because... I mean, the, the interesting thing is in prison culture, like I said, it's changed now, but, you know, there, there is, the, people would get a teardrop for people they've killed, which does signify some sort of remorse, you know, it's like... It, a penance. It, yeah, a penance, exactly, you know, and... and I can see that. I know, never really understood that before, but I can understand that now. Yeah, you know, and so that's why, you know, now obviously that things have changed, but you couldn't, like I said, if you rolled into a... A prison then you had a teardrop tattoo and you hadn't killed anybody then you you were in trouble you were in trouble so do when yeah. people run into you when you get out and they see the teardrop do they get scared do they react to it do they say uh, why do you have that like sometimes I, I it used to happen more often obviously it says now because you see you know like people have 
face tattoos right. and, and all kinds of different tattoos. And so tattoos don't... They don't mean they, the same thing. They don't mean the same thing that they did. You know, but certainly, uh, I mean, I don't... People might not... A lot of people probably didn't say anything. But every once in a while, I, you know, somebody come up and say, hey, like... What happened? Like, yeah, is that is that real? Or I heard that that means right, you know right. and i usually sit down and go yeah right you know that's that's uh what happened you know so um and you didn't stay sober though right you no had, so how many relapses did you have between then and now well i mean one it was just a long one so i had six years and i had all this shit like i built up all this shit i even i had friends in recovery like that went to meetings and did all that shit but i it just like I'd had this moment of clarity, you know, and I got out and I had my family and, and I built up all these things on the outside and I don't know, it just, I, I felt like I didn't need that. So you weren't doing the work. I didn't no, Didn't do like, I did all this outside work, but I didn't do, I'd done when I was in prison, I'd read a lot of books. I'd done a lot of internal work, but when I got out, you know, I, I jumped back into life and I didn't do anything, you know, to, to honor that moment of clarity. I didn't really understand alcoholism or drug addiction either. It's like, you know, I, I, I didn't know that like this shit, like I'm, I'm a lifer, right. You know, that that's just always there, you know? And so what happened was six years go by, you know, I built up all this shit on the outside. I'm playing music. We've, we've been touring, but I was uh, in San Diego at a club and Jim Martin from faith. No more was playing guitar for Fang at the time. And he handed me a Coors Light, you know, and I'm just like, dude, what can one Coors Light hurt? You know, like it, it had been like, like since I'd had, you know, Pruno, you know, had been a long time ago, but like a real, like a beer, I didn't, it'd been, you know, fuck, I don't know, 12 years right. or something. It'd been a long time. And it seems so innocuous, a Coors Light so in your hand. It so fucking innocuous. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, it's Coors, which is questionable if it's even beer. Coors Light, it's, you know, everybody says that shit's like water. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that one Coors Light took fucking everything. Right. You know, like I drank that. I really didn't think that hard about it. And, and it, it fucking opened the door. And then I was, you know, it, it was kind of insidious too, because it wasn't like I drank a beer and then I'm at the dope man's house. You know, I drank a beer, you know, and then I, I, I got fucked up and, you know, but it, it, it took a minute for me, you know, how did it go? What was, how did it get from the beer to, 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 to where I was like shooting yeah. heroin? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first I just started drinking. I think that's important for people to hear that, you know, that, that, and it, it like I said, it was insidious because like I, I kind of, you know, like I, I didn't drink every day at first, you know, we were on tour when I first had that drink. So I drank every day on tour, you know, that opened the gates. But when I got home, I've got the family and I, you know, so was, did you make the connection between drinking every day on tour and the fact that you were a drug addict? No, because when I got home, I, I stopped drinking, you know, like right. I didn't stop, stop drinking, but you know, like it wasn't like uh, being a dope fiend. Yeah. Like I didn't, you know, like I didn't, I would, I was working, I worked my ass off work during the week, maybe have a couple drinks on the weekend, you know, like uh, me and the wife would go out, we'd go to the bar and then, you know, and she had also, she stopped fucking around, uh, when I was in prison. So we both start drinking together. She hadn't drank in years either, you know, but now that I was, it, it opened that door. And so, she didn't realize what could happen. No, no, no fucking idea, you know? And it, and like I said, it, it, it was insidious because I, 
you know, I, I could, I, for a little while, I actually drank like a gentleman. But ultimately, deep down, I am not a gentleman. I'm right. an alcoholic and I'm right. a drug addict. And it, it took about a, a year before I was in a situation where there was, you know, uh, I, sometimes I'd party too hard, do a little blow, whatever. But it, it took about a year before I found the rig in the bottom of the beer bottle. You know, and that's what always happens for me. I find the rig of heroin in the bottom of the beer bottle. Right. You know, and I was in a, I was hanging out with this guy and he pulls out some foil and he's like, yeah, I go, you know, got to do my, my thing. And I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, let me just uh, let me get a taste of that. Right. You know? And then it's done. And then it was fucking done. Right. You know? And then it, it everything crumbled down, you know, like the business, the marriage, you know, like I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of. I've got a stolen car. I've got my kids, somebody else's kid, a ounce of heroin and a fucking three fifty seven under the seat that's got the numbers filed up. That's like normalized behavior for me. As soon as it happens, you know, right? You as know, soon like, as the like, switch I, is on, it's like all bets are off. Yeah, like that moral code out the window. You know, like my, I I normalize real quick. You know, like whatever shitty behavior I need to do to make sure that I stay loaded, that's just normal all of a sudden. You know where. When I'm clean, when I'm sober, that kind of behavior is abhorrent to me. You know, like I would, you know, like, like to drive around with your kids with, you know, being a violent felon. I mean, it's just, it's, but that's just. That's the insanity. That's the insanity. How did you get to sobriety the second time? Like, what was the consequence? Was there consequences? So, I mean. Because you didn't lose your kids, right? Well, I'd abandoned my kids. Right. So you did lose your kids by your own making. I absolutely lost my kids. You know, I took off. Um, the marriage had fallen apart. She also had started getting loaded, so it was super toxic. Um, and I, I finally bailed all my kids. I ended up down in Texas. Uh, I had this guy. Uh, he was my crime partner. And, you know, sometimes you get around people and they bring you up, and sometimes you get around people and you're just horrible. You know, we were just horrible for each other. Uh and so we were down in Texas. We got stuck in Houston. And uh, I, I'd done a tattoo on my homeboy sometime before. We had the 357. And so we ran out of money. And so we start doing armed robberies and doing, doing collections down there. And this guy's got voices and huge letters tattooed across his forehead. Fairly recognizable. Not the best crime partner to have. Yes. You know? And we were also such successful fucking criminals that we had one gun between the two of us. Just find know. the guy with voices tattooed <laughs> to his forehead. It's yes. like the worst. You know, so we're like we're living in this fucked up RV. You know, we're, we're doing crime. Just try to fucking, you know, just try to maintain shitty fucking habits. It's it's all I mean, it's it's you know, it's all bad. And what happened was voices went out to go. We take turns. You know, when you called a, him voices. Well, no, but I will. Well, okay. I'll leave his name out of this, but I'm sure most people did yeah. or do. <laughs> Maybe. So uh, when we Mr. Voices, Mr. Voices, it yes. was his turn to go hit a lick. Okay. You know, when we do collections, we do it together. But when we went out to do a robbery, we take turns because we only had one gun. So it was his turn to go hit a lick to do a robbery. And he went out and he got busted. He'd been in prison in Texas before. So he gets cracked. And there was a woman down there and her name was faith it was really her name and faith found out that david gotten busted and uh at voices had gotten busted and faith came and she sat me down and she's like sammy there's only two ends to this story he's like either somebody's gonna kill you or you're gonna spend the rest of your life in prison 
and for whatever reason, it was just like another like another moment of clarity. You and know? you heard her. I heard her. You know, and it wasn't like other people had said like, "Dude, what are you doing? Like, you're fucking your life up. You're fucking your kids' life up." You know, I don't know what it was about that moment or about her, but I heard her, and I knew I had to stop what I was doing. And um, you know, I it it wasn't like it didn't happen immediately. I I finally I left. Texas. I went to Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia for a while trying to get my shit together. I wasn't doing any crime, but I was just living, trying to get on methadone. It was brutal. And finally, uh, there was a a woman in California and she was in the rooms and she'd always said, look, if you're ever really ready, I'll help you. You know, and so finally uh, I went back to California and I, and I started, you know, I I had to kick to, for me to kick uh, her and this other friend of mine, they, there, she had a basement room, and me and, and my buddy, we actually boarded up the windows. We fucking got plywood, and we fucking boarded up the windows. I put a deadbolt in the door, and so you had to have a key to get out of this room. And I said, lock me in this room. You, you wanted know, to kick it, in there. Yeah, that, that I knew if I could get out, I would, go get, I would go get loaded. Like, the only way I could kick at that point I knew was I had to be locked up. And I just built the cell myself. You know, and so her and, and my buddy, they locked me in this room and there was a bucket in there and they would come, they changed clean the bucket, the bucket clean yeah. the bucket mm-hmm. and, uh, and listen to me rant. And it was funny when she, she was putting me in there. She goes, so how long is this going to fucking take? And I'm like, it's going to take a long time and I'm going to lie to you. And I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say the house is burning down. I'm going to say I'm dying. You just have to fucking ignore me. And so I was in that room for a month. Wow, you know, and uh, and that that for me is is what it took. Do you remember it? Uh, vaguely, uh, you know, I have some memory. There there was a TV in there and a VCR, and every uh, episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer on DVD, or no, it was a VHS. Sure. So I I watched every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer over and over again for weeks on end. Right. And, and I couldn't tell you what I, I have no idea whatever happened in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And in all that kind of period, do you think you were haunted by Dixie? Like, did that come back? Like, every time that you tried to get centered, was that the first thing that would show up in your brain? I, I think that there's a lot of... Or your kids, a, it's a, so a, much. I think that, that there's a lot of guilt, you know? Sure. And, and um, I, I definitely think that, uh, that, I'm, that, 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 and like you said, my kids, the torment, you know, because I don't want to... I don't want to have to feel the shame. I don't want to have to feel the guilt, you know? And so, I mean, I think that that's... And the chaos. You know, it's why a lot of us do, you know, or and the fear. You know, we, we, we're we running from the fear. We're running from the shame. We're running from the guilt. You know, and that's why booze and drugs are so fucking attractive, you know, especially... Because it like, takes us out of it. It takes us away from it. It gives us know? something that makes us think of something else, and we feel better. It physically makes us feel better. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And how soon after that, like you were, you walked out a month kicking. Yeah, you kind of get your strength back in a month. Dude, it took. It was it was more than a month for me. I, like I remember six months in, and I'm going, like, am I ever going to feel physically normal again? Well, how yeah. serious was the last run? Eight years shooting heroin every fucking day. Right. You how know? did you maintain that habit? I, I did crime. You know, I mean, I, but robberies. I, well, did you, did you miss the acid business at that point because it, it was no, such good money? I, you know, the acid business, the acid kind of died at that time. So uh, early on, um, you know, I had built things up, and you know, I'd become an electrician, and so 
I actually uh, was able to keep it going for a long time because I was a pretty good electrician. I was an electrical contractor. I had my own company. So I, I had finances. So it took a while to like really fuck that all off to the point where I'm living in an RV in Houston doing armed robberies. You know, it took years. With the guy with voices tattooed. Yeah, with voices. Yes. Me and voices fucking running amok in Houston. Um, so, it, you know, it, that was like the last year of that, that eight-year run. You know, like I, 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 I got strung out. I've gone on methadone. I'm trying to keep the family together. You know, it, it wasn't just like immediate crime and drama you know like i did have a family for you know like and i it, it was it it was a slow ugly ugly descent you know into back into hell total hell you know right and then you 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 seek out what you you know you you seek it's at your own level which is you knew that you were capable of going worse you know what i mean it's yes. like and like it's like now if if you relapsed or if i relapsed it probably wouldn't be enough until it got to that level no that's that is the terrifying part that you know like I knew how bad it had to get last time. And I'm, you know, I, one of my favorite slogans from the rooms is if you can't be happy about what you have, be glad you didn't get what you deserved. You right. Know, I never heard that. You know, because I know, like, I do not deserve the life that I have. You know, that I, I got very, very lucky. And does it say dose here? <laughs> uh, disciple. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's looking at my knuckles. I have disciple tattoos. And what's disciple for? Uh, well, I had a I had a band when I got when I first got uh, when I got clean, got sober. I put this band together. It was a recovery based band, you know, called the Disciples, and we put out a record. It was and most of the you know, it was, uh, a lot of the songs were very much about redemption, recovery. Uh, and you worked in recovery too. Uh, yeah, for years. Uh, so after I finally got clean, got sober. Um, it, it took a while, but then finally I ended up, I opened a sober house for men in, uh, in Oakland and, and ran that for many years. You know, we had, uh, it was called the promise house. Fucking awesome. You know, I had guys, a lot of guys coming from jail or coming from, uh, from institutions, you know? And so they knew who that, you were, they knew who I was, they knew I had been where they'd been. You know, and so that made a huge difference. You well, know, Sammy, I think your story's uh, obviously insane and and tragic, but also like it's amazing. You know, here we are, and you have twelve, thirteen, thirteen years, twelve years, thirteen years. You have thirteen years of sobriety. You you didn't really get naked at my father's house. <laughs> we had, you know what I mean? Like you're doing good, and uh, and I'm I'm happy you you're here. No, I I really appreciate that you have me on. Dude, there's I really do. There's a dude in New Zealand who sent in a voicemail about where he's at. You want to hear his voicemail? Oh, absolutely. Let's right. check it out. There's a big-time Dopey Nation guy named Mike. We'll call him Mike or Mick. Hold on. Here we go. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dopey Nation. It's Mike here. I hope everyone's uh, happy and well. Um, I just thought I'd send in a little message. Uh, I haven't sent anything in for a while. Um, and this one is not really a funny story or any nostalgia value to it. It's... Um, just uh, what's happened over the last three months for me. And um, I hope uh, if anyone out there is fucking struggling, just please ask for help because I could have avoided a lot of this if I'd have just been honest with myself and others and put my hands up and said, look, I need some help here in whatever form that may be. Um, I had had a good few months um, 
and I started having problems sleeping. Uh, I was very unfortunate as a kid. I was abused as a kid, and that has some knock-on effects now in how I react to things. Um, and I was having a conversation with my partner about some stuff that happened at uh, our daughter's school. Uh, it was nothing bad, nothing bad at all. All I had to do was ask some sensible, intelligent questions, and um, she's a great mother, so she looks after our daughter's best interests. I had nothing to be worried about. But I didn't ask these questions, and I didn't react normally, um, and it turned into a argument, and I ended up kicking the chair across the dining room in front of my seven-year-old daughter, who I'm in my head trying to protect. I then realised what had happened, and like by this point, I was sort of close to having a fucking panic attack. I marched into the bedroom, punched the wall several times until I break my hand. So, off to the hospital, straight fucking cast, splint, all that, and of course pain meds. So there we go, bang. I stopped taking my Suboxone, start taking the morphine. Um, they didn't prescribe me as much morphine um, as... I'd hoped, so uh, I started drinking vodka um, to fucking give it a kick up the arse. Um, and um, this went on for a few weeks. Uh, I started taking Valium on top of that as well. Um, Realised I'd sort of fucked up in the way this was heading and tried to cull it back and, and sort of managed to. Uh, I stopped taking morphine and um, the Valium and cut the drink down and I was just about ready to go back to work. Um, and bang, I got appendicitis, probably as a result of the sheer amount of shit I've been putting into my body over those few weeks. Um, in the hospital, appendix out, wake up, fucking fentanyl patch on me, and a fucking script for morphine and tramadol, come back home, first thing I do, go down the shop, you know, still stitches and everything, I'm not really even meant to be out and about. Um... And we're in a we were in a form of uh, we we had a brief lockdown here in New Zealand as well because uh, there was a spike in COVID cases. So I go straight down the chemist um, in lockdown um, to cash my script. While I'm down there, I buy vodka and I buy more Valium off a guy who I know down there, Skeezer, who's down the chemist all the time. Um, walking back to the car, stopped by the police because it's locked down, they searched me, they found the Valium, but it was the only thing on me that was unmarked, I did have, I had a big bag of legitimate pills, so it was, I got away with that one, um, they just sent me home, uh, uh, where I just fucking had a meltdown and went, look, this is ridiculous, I need to just fucking get it together, you know, I'm, I'm sleeping only a couple hours a night, and just freaking out at the slightest little thing and um, pu putting on this fucking facade of um, normality, you know. It's this sort of weird pretense, defence or whatever, and, but, but it's because I let it get so far, you know. If I have just fucking put my hands up and said, look, oh, I'm struggling, I need some fucking help, it doesn't matter what the help looks like, you know, just please ask for it. I... I'm not the most active on the social media peer support groups these days because, I don't know, for whatever reason, but, I, I, you know, I see people posting things, asking for help, and there's a myriad of other 
ways to, to, to do that. So if, you, if you're struggling, please do. I'm in a point now where I'm sort of thinking about going away for fucking 28 days to sort my shit out again, you know, it's uh, the thought has crossed my mind and um, I'm thinking quite seriously about it, but I could have probably nipped that in the bud if I'd have just been fucking a bit more honest with myself and others. So, um, yeah, there we go. That's my fucking spiel. (laughs) Look, I hope everyone's well and happy and um, I hope someone gets something from this, I don't know. But anyway... Thanks, Dave, for all you do. Loads of love to everybody. Fucking stay strong, Dobie Nation, and toodles for Chris. So that's a crazy um, deal for this guy. Super intense. Right? I mean, like, you listen to it, and, I mean, you've worked with addicts, but but I can still see it hitting you because you can relate to it. I can. It's like, dude, oh, you're so trapped, so trapped. I really hope that, you know, I absolutely, like, get yourself get into a program you know like get yourself away from from the circumstances as as soon as you can you know that it uh, especially when there's opiates involved because it's just hard like i'm amazed that you locked yourself in a basement and got to walk away from opiates even for a month i mean like i never could do it unless i I had to go away every time like i never could do it unless i went away yeah i mean the good thing about it was like that it was she lived kind of far out in the middle of nowhere too. So even after I came out of the basement, we were still, you know, and, and honestly, like it was, I had another whole year of chipping and struggling. That's where Mick is at. And right. You know, and, and of not being able to stay sober, stay clean, you know? And I don't like that moment when I finally really totally surrendered and just stop trying. Like, I can't tell you why that happened when it did. You know, it's just like I just feel super grateful that it did. But not only that, you you worked a 12-step program. Oh, absolutely. And I never wanted to work a 12-step no, program. No, I just found that it actually, and it's so funny because when I was young and I would go to meetings and people would say it works if you work it, I would be like, fuck you. I don't want to hear about it. It's annoying that you say that. Yes. But only now do I actually understand what it means that if you actually do work, you have a better life. Yes. And, and, it, and it's easier. And, and like, it's easier. It would be easier for, for Mike. You know what I mean? It's like people are scared of the dogma around 12 step. People are scared Absolutely. of all that shit, but it's like, it's easier. It's it's just it, it it's a it's a bedrock foundation. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, there are other ways to sure. recover. I, I I absolutely know that, but I I also know for me, like I tried everything else. You know, methadone, suboxone, all that bullshit. You know, nothing except for abstinence and and going to meetings, doing everything. You know, like doing for me just doing what other people told me to do i never fucking did what other people told me to do you tell me to do something i say go fuck yourself exactly take some suggestions and like whatever it is doesn't have to be a 12-step thing mike but i mean like i couldn't build a bookcase if it wasn't from ikea like i need fucking (laughs) i can't i can't make fucking brownies without a fucking recipe recipe that's what i always talk about is like like a recipe and and that recipes you know like some people need to work out five times a day and go to two meetings a week and meet their sponsor once a month you you just got to figure out what that recipe is but i will say that that for a good portion of the people that i know the 12 steps has been a 
a good portion of their recipe that's definitely made a big difference for them. I know, I know it's my recipe. Uh, I also know that like it was accessible and free yeah. and pretty easy to follow, right. and I needed it. Yeah. Needed it to work. Yeah, Mike, you do whatever you got to do, and yeah, everybody yeah. should do whatever whatever they can do to feel better. Whatever they can do to hold on and get through the day. Yeah, you know, do it. You and know? days are weird right now. Oh yeah, we got some weird fucking days. Anybody who gets sober during the pandemic, my head is way off to you, right? You know? Or stays that way. Yeah, or stays that way. Absolutely, it's fucking crazy yeah. fucking times. Anyway, Sammy, thank you for coming through. Thanks for having me. I'm fucking super glad. Uh, I, I love the show. I'm really glad that you brought me on. Well, me too. And we say, uh, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Right, toodles for Chris. Right on, man. <laughs>